Pleasure to have you with me here. I just wolfed down, it was either three or four Cinnamon Toast Crunch cupcakes, and they were delicious. Breakfast of champions, if you ask me. Um, There were a couple people who walked up to me um, at the Marianne Williamson event, and of all the segments and topics we cover, the one that was immediately (laughs) breached was my ranking lists. (laughs) I think it was... Well, somebody brought up the cereal one, and then somebody brought up the fighting animals one. So, yeah. Hilarious, the, thing, the things that land and the things that don't. But nonetheless, we are here. I welcome you. A lot of stuff to talk about today. Going to lead with Noam Chomsky and his takes on Russia and Ukraine. We'll break that down. Um, <clears throat> got an update on Elon Musk's attempted takeover of Twitter. Then we have uh, an amazing story about Alex Jones and his maneuver in the face of the Sandy Hook lawsuits. Uh, Charlie Kirk is in the show. We got this real bombshell video of a congressman explaining just how terrible the corruption is in Washington, D.C. We'll talk about that. There's a lot to say about that. Um, we got Ted Cruz. The, the claws are out for Nina Turner. Um, new union victories. Fox losing it over a four-day work week. Uh, Florida banning a whole bunch of textbooks, so, and that's just a little taste of what you have to look forward to. you got way more than that. So anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started, and we'll do that with Nomis Chomsky. So Noam Chomsky has been doing a bunch of interviews recently. He spoke to Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs, and uh, he also spoke to Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept. He's a busy man for being 178 years old, if I don't say so myself. So um, first what I want to do, I'm going to get to a video in a second. It's, uh, you know, a piece of the interview he did with Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept. But before I do that, let me show you the thing he said 
to Nathan J. Robinson, which is uh, leading to quite a bit of backlash online. Um, and I would say it's, you know, bipartisan backlash to some extent. But anyway, so somebody tweeted, sage old Noam Chomsky patiently explaining to Ukrainians, few of whom I suspect he's actually spoken to about this, that they really have no choice but to surrender and concede to Russia virtually everything it demands, quote, because that's just the way the world works. Disgraceful. So this is what somebody said, uh, a guy named Vincent Artman. So let me read the passage that he, he puts in the tweet here, the, the passage that people are angry at him over. So Chomsky said the following. So I'm not criticizing Zelensky. He's an honorable person and has shown great courage. You can sympathize with his positions, but you can also pay attention to the reality of the world. And that's what it implies. I'll go back to what I said before. There are basically two options. One option is to pursue the policy we are now following, to quote Ambassador Freeman again, to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. And yes, we can pursue that policy with the possibility of nuclear war. Or we can face the reality that the only alternative is a diplomatic settlement, which will be ugly. It will give Putin and his narrow circle an escape hatch. It will say, here's how you can get out without destroying Ukraine and going back to destroy the world. We know the basic framework is neutralization of Ukraine, some kind of accommodation for the Donbass region with a high level of autonomy, maybe within some federal structure in Ukraine, and recognizing that, like it or not, Crimea is not on the table. You may not like it. You may not like the fact that there's a hurricane coming tomorrow, but you can't stop it by saying, I don't like hurricanes, or I don't recognize hurricanes. That doesn't do any good. And the fact of the matter is, every rational analyst knows that Crimea is, for now, off the table, that's the alternative to the destruction of Ukraine and nuclear war. You can make heroic statements if you'd like about not liking hurricanes or not liking the solution, but that's not doing anyone any good. Okay, so I, I should note here that when he says Crimea is off the table, he's clearly not saying Crimea is off the table as in that will continue to be part of Ukraine. He's saying Crimea is off the table as in uh, Russia's uh, had control of it since 2014, and so it, it's going to be under Russian control either officially or in some unofficial way, but it will not leave Russian control. So um, a lot of criticism over this. I would say the aspect of the criticism that I understand is, you know, if Noam Chomsky is talking about the war in Iraq, I don't think Noam Chomsky would say something along the lines of, you know, uh, Iraq needs to live in the real world and understand that... Uh, you're going to have to make some giant concessions to the marauding imperialist invader. I, that wouldn't be the bulk of his commentary. No, that's because he's from the U.S. and so he feels responsible for the actions of the U.S. and so he would put the burden more on us. But I do get the criticism in the sense that, you know, large superpowers do messed up things. And you can, like, across the board denounce it when the U.S. does it, but also you can recognize when another large, powerful government is doing a messed up thing and put the burden and the onus on that country. So I don't know if I call it a blind spot, but I'd say it is, there is a problem with his thinking here where, you know, again, if it was the U.S. doing it, he would reserve the bulk of his commentary to bashing the aggression of the U.S., but when Russia is illegally invading another country and occupying it, he doesn't, there, there's not much of that. It, it, I mean, to an extent, it's like, well, of course they shouldn't do it. But it's also, hey, this is sort of the reality of the world, so, you know, you're going to have to accept certain things here. And so 
I do understand the criticism to some extent. However, I also think people are sort of misstating Chomsky's position um, because you can take this little portion out of the interview and say this encapsulates everything about Noam Chomsky's position, but that's definitely not true because I watched that entire interview, or I should, I, no, I watched a lot of the interview he did with um, Jeremy Scahill over at The Intercept, and now let me show you that video so you get a more fully fleshed out take on what his position really is. We can take time to talk about the broader historical context, and you've been discussing this uh, a lot in other interviews, but I, I want to just start by asking you, is there any aspect of the U.S., NATO, and European Union response to this invasion that you believe is just? The weapons transfers to Ukraine, uh, the sweeping economic sanctions and attempts to entirely isolate not only Russia and Putin, but ordinary Russians. Is there any aspect of the government response to this by the U.S., NATO, or the European Union that you agree with? I think that uh, support for Ukraine's effort to defend itself is legitimate. If it is, of course, it has to be carefully scaled so that it actually improves their situation and doesn't escalate the conflict to lead to destruction of Ukraine and uh, possibly beyond uh, sanctions against the aggressor are appropriate, just as sanctions against Washington would have been appropriate when it invaded Iraq or Afghanistan or many other cases. Of course, that's unthinkable given U.S. power. And in fact, for a few times it has been done, the one time it has been done, the U.S. simply shrugged its soldiers and escalated, escalated the conflict. Well, that was in Nicaragua when the U.S. was brought to the world court, condemned for unlawful use of force, ordered to pay reparations, uh, responded by escalating the conflict. But so it's unthinkable in the case of the U.S., but it would be appropriate. However, I still think it's not quite the right question. The right question is, what is the best thing to do to save Ukraine from a grim fate, from further destruction? And that's to move towards a negotiated settlement. Uh, there are some simple facts that aren't really controversial. Uh, there are two ways for a war to end. One way is for one side or the other to be basically destroyed, and the Russians are not going to be destroyed. So that means one way is for Ukraine to be destroyed. The other way is some negotiated settlement. If there's a third way, no one's ever figured it out. So what we should be doing is devoting all the things you mentioned, if properly uh, shaped, but primarily moving towards a possible negotiated settlement that will save Ukrainians from further disaster. So that's his full position. And when I look at him describe his full position, I think that's very reasonable. I don't see much to, to pick apart there. So let's go through it. He says, um, support for Ukraine's effort to defend itself 
is legitimate. And then he adds the, the caveat, if it's carefully scaled and doesn't escalate. <clears throat> so I think what he means by that is, yeah, they have a right to defend themselves and they can and, and should be armed, but don't, you know, set up a no-fly zone for them and drag the U.S. into it. Don't, essentially, like, don't give them false hope. And um, also, perhaps, don't arm the Azov Battalion, the neo-Nazis who are officially part of uh, the Ukrainian National Guard. So I think he's just saying you can give them weapons to defend themselves, but don't go too far and perhaps give certain kinds of weapons that could escalate the conflict and draw in the West and make it devolve out of control where, you know, nuclear war is on the table. So I totally agree with him on, on that point. And in fact, I think he's way more correct than the mainstream opinion, certainly mainstream media, where they seem to believe, give them like any and all weapons and also set up a no-fly zone where NATO and or the U.S. is shooting Russian planes out of the sky, which is direct military conflict between two nuclear armed powers, which would be an absolute catastrophe and disaster. So I, I agree with him on that. And I got to be honest, I'm a little surprised that he's saying that he supports any weaponry going to Ukraine. But he does. He just said, I support Ukraine's effort to defend itself, and it's legitimate. You just need to make sure you carefully scale the weaponry and don't escalate it. Um, then he even says sanctions against the aggressor, he, by that he means Russia, are appropriate. Um, he goes on to say, as it was, you know, if people wanted to sanction the U.S. after what we did in Iraq, that would have been appropriate. Now, I will add the little asterisk here, and this is just my position, but I'm sure he would agree if somebody were to bring this up to him. Uh, I don't support any of the sanctions that hurt the Russian population. I would try to target the sanctions as much as possible to Putin, his inner circle, the military, the oligarchs. Um, and really, as a matter of principle, I think that that's the best response. Even if it doesn't lead to, quote unquote, positive outcomes, you can't just let you know, one country invade uh, another sovereign country and sit there and watch it. Now, again, I'm consistent on that because I say the same thing when the U.S. does it. You, you know, nobody should just sit there and watch the U.S. commit war crimes and uh, invade sovereign countries. It's wrong when we do it, so it's wrong when Russia does it. So there should be standards and, and rules and laws that are upheld in the process of that. So Chomsky doesn't say here that, he, you know, he supports or doesn't support the sanctions against the people of Russia, but I assume he'd agree that going after the people of Russia is way too far because that's just collective punishment and they're innocent bystanders. They didn't do anything wrong, and so you, know, you shouldn't crack down on them. But look, I mean, when you look, at that first, when you look at the first comment that I shared with you from the interview with Current Affairs, you would have no idea that this is what Chomsky believes as well. To some extent, arming Ukraine to defend themselves and to some extent, sanctioning Russia are totally legitimate. So I, now, now you see maybe the backlash was way overblown and people were strawmanning him to some extent in the sense that it's misleading to just show that comment of his without giving the rest of his position. Then he goes on to say there's going to have to be a negotiation and some diplomatic settlement, effectively because the other options are what? Like, what are, what are the other options? Endless escalation to eventual World War III? That's a potential, uh, another option. Um, or an endless 10-year war where, you know, Russia is just bogged down in Ukraine and you get the death toll rising nonstop. And so when you look at all the, the real options that are on the table, yeah, it makes sense. We should want to have a negotiation, uh, want to 
do a diplomatic settlement. And yes, the nature of diplomatic settlements, especially in situations like this, nobody's going to be happy. Nobody's going to be happy. You know, uh, Ukraine, of course, isn't going to be happy. Um, Russia is not going to be happy. And, but we need to find a way out. Like, you, we need to find a way out because we're really playing with fire here. And so the, the other point, though, is one that is the most complicated to me because what would that settlement look like? That's the question. Well, I've reported to you guys based on a number of things I've read uh, and a number of things have been reported that Zelensky had put on the table basically all of Russia's main asks. So, you know, Russia's main asks, neutrality for Ukraine, as in, you know, don't, don't be part of NATO and perhaps don't form other alliances with the West. Um, that's one of the things on the table. Zelensky had a number of times conceded on that front and said, look, it is what it is. Even if I want to be part of NATO, we're not going to be part of NATO because there's a roadblock within NATO. So, yes, we're going to be neutral. So total concession on that. The other thing is the Donbass region, some settlement for the Donbass region, um, either where you have the two independent republics actually become independent republics or you have them become part of Russia or a certain percentage of them becomes part of Russia. Now, he has previously put that on the table as well. And then the other thing, of course, is Crimea. And there were indications in the press that Zelensky had also put that on the table. And so on the main prongs, the one that they cannot give in on under any circumstances, you know, total disarming. That's, that's insane. <laughs> no, nobody would give in to that, nor should they. Okay? But all the other things are on the table. Um, so some sort of solution would look like that. But now I've since seen headlines talking about how uh, certain things here are now off the table. So if Zelensky had put, particularly, I think, the Donbass region and Crimea, they were put on the table. And now I've read some headlines within the past two or three days that they're off the table. So I don't really know now, you know, what truly is on the table and what isn't on the table. Um, but any sort of deal is going to include most of those things or all of those things. I will say there's one response to Chomsky here which could be correct, but we just have no way of knowing, which is an argument you could make if you disagree with Chomsky is, look, you want to have some diplomatic settlement, right? And you want to enforce that and get relative stability and peace. You know, any reasonable person would understand that. But what if you do that and then Russia doesn't stop? What if you do that and you can't appease Putin because he's got his mindset on further territorial expansion. And so then you have a situation where it would be fair to call everybody who is pushing most aggressively for peace, Neville Chamberlain. And it's like, you guys are naive. Look at what you did. You made a deal with the devil, and then now the devil is doing what the devil does. And so that's the only critique I could see of Chomsky that is actually uh, sound in the sense that you are accepting all of the contours and nuances of his argument and you accurately represent his position and then you respond to it. Now, this is not the critique I see coming against Chomsky. People are not making that critique, but that is a theoretical critique you could make if you disagree with him. Um, but my position on it is you got to take the chance. Like, you got to give peace a chance. You have to try to get some sort of settlement here. And again, it's not going to make anybody happy, but... Um, it's doable, and it's the least bad of all bad options. But I will say, it, it's not, look, it's not my decision to make, right? Now, the U.S., the, our negative role in this is that we don't appear to be offering an off-ramp 
we don't appear to be wanting a diplomatic settlement. But you could argue, you know, Putin doesn't want it either, right? Or else he would have already made it if, if some of those things were actually on the table. Um, but I, my take is you have to try. You have to try to give peace a chance because the, the other options are just significantly worse. And look, if we get to the point where we make a deal, we think the deal's enforced, and then within a year, you know, Putin tries to do more territorial expansion, well, <laughs> then the argument that he was unappeasable is perhaps totally legitimate, and we'll have to reevaluate at the time. But where we are right now, you know, I don't think we can make that, we can come to that conclusion definitively, and so we really have no other option. So ultimately, what I would say is, I, you know, I largely agree with Chomsky here. I largely agree with Chomsky. Uh, it is up to the Ukrainians, and here's what I think will happen, hopefully. At some point, they will make some sort of a deal, you know, and that could come relatively soon, which would be positive because fewer people would die, or maybe the fighting drags on for years. And then after years, everybody's appetite for war subsides, and they're in like a permanent stalemate to some extent, and then you get that peace deal. So, but again, what I favor is not really as relevant as what the people on the ground in Ukraine favor. And so you just sort of have to let the peace process run its course and see where it leads. I could understand why people would say, hey, you know, Chomsky, you know, who are you to make this choice? If Ukraine wants to, if they want to fight to the last Ukrainian, that's their prerogative. But I think he's coming at this from the perspective he wants to see less death and less destruction. And I understand that. So, yes, that first comment, there are some criticisms that I think are fair. Um, but when he fleshes out his entire position, I really don't see much wrong with his position at all. Because he says he, has, he supports Ukraine's effort to defend itself, and arming them to some extent is legitimate, but it has to be, you know, proportionate or proportional, whatever the word is. Um, sanctions against the aggressor Russia are appropriate, as it was against the U.S. when we did Iraq. Although I would say don't go too far where you hurt civilians. Uh, and again, he wants a negotiated settlement because what are our other options? Drag the war out for years and years and years or escalate towards World War III? Those are unthinkable. So, again, the, the, the weird part of it is Zelensky, previously there was reporting he did put the Donbass region on the table for some sort of a deal. He did put Crimea on the table for some sort of a deal. And he's already conceded on neutralization. The only thing he's not backing off of is, yep, you must disarm, which he's right to not back off of that. That was the previous reporting. Now, the new reporting is those things are actually off the table, or certain, certain of those are off the table. So I don't know where we're at in the peace process. And I know that the U.S. is really not interested too much in peace because we're not providing an off-ramp for Putin. And arguably, Putin's not at all interested in peace right now either because uh, if he wants it, he could just withdraw. <laughs> but he's not doing that because he still has you know, some long-term goals here. He's, there is reporting he's backed off of Kiev in particular. I mean, yes, they got bogged down there. They, they couldn't capture it like they wanted to capture it. So now they're settling for less, namely probably something involving Donbass and Crimea. But um, anyway, there you have it. Those are Chomsky's comments. There was a big backlash and a dogpile. But when you, look at, when you listen to his full fleshed out position, while I have little disagreements with it here and there, I think it's largely reasonable. Okay. All right, next. We are going to talk about Elon Musk. Here we go. 
Elon Musk. Elon Musk. All right, so Elon Musk um, has been trying to basically buy out Twitter. And uh, it appears like the board is now doing this jujitsu move, this financial jujitsu move, to try to block that. So let's go ahead and take a look at this article here. CNBC, Twitter board adopts poison pill after Musk's $43 billion bid to buy company. Twitter adopted a limited-duration shareholder rights plan, often called a poison pill, a day after billionaire Elon Musk offered to buy the company for $43 billion, the company announced Friday. Such a move is a common way to fend off a potential hostile takeover by diluting the stake of the entity eyeing the takeover. The board voted unanimously to adopt the plan. Unanimously, they did that. Okay, let's take a look at the body of the article here. The, right, the rights, plan, rights plan will reduce the likelihood that any entity, person, or group gains control of Twitter through open market accumulation without paying all shareholders an appropriate control premium or without providing the board sufficient time to make informed judgments and take actions that are in the best interest of the shareholders, the company said in a press release. Twitter noted that the rights plan would not prevent the board from accepting an acquisition offer if the board deems it is in the best interest of the company and its shareholders. Musk already owns more than a 9% stake in Twitter, revealed in a Securities and Exchange Commission filing last week. Soon after his stake became public, Twitter CEO announced plans for Musk to join the board. But days later, Musk reversed course and decided not to join the board after all. If he had joined, Musk would not be allowed to accumulate more than 14.9% of beneficial ownership of the company's outstanding common stock. Also on Friday, Bloomberg reported, citing anonymous sources, that Twitter brought, brought, brought on J.P. Morgan to help respond to Musk's bid. Twitter had already been working with Goldman Sachs, and Musk had been working with Morgan Stanley. Okay. So, look, it appears like there's, you know, basically some semblance of a standoff here. You know, it, it looks like he's trying now in a number of ways to, to wrestle control of Twitter uh, from Twitter. And I think Jack Dorsey weighed on this, too, and basically said the interests of the shareholders are really not aligned with the company, something to that effect. So I'm interested to see what happens. I'm interested to see how this unfolds. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if Elon Musk has more tricks up his sleeve and perhaps he can get control of the company. I don't know um, if they're going to be able to block that. And also, I've got to be honest with you guys, I don't know how much of a difference him gaining control of Twitter would really bring about. Because is, is he going to be able to be in control of the company, like basically some sort of dictator? And if, if he is, let's assume that for a second, then what policy changes is he really going to make? Now, he's floated a few here and there, like people basically having the right to buy a check mark, and if you buy a check mark, then you know it's a way to sort of weed out all the bots. I mean, that's that's the idea here. Um, and there are other things he's floated as well that I'm blanking on at the moment. But he says, "Hey, look, I wanna I wanna make the company embrace free speech much more than it currently does." Now, you guys know I always talk about that's my my main issue with Twitter is I think there's way too much um, censorship and deplatforming and and things of that nature, but I don't think this is a long-term solution because, first of all, even if Musk gets control and does, you know, embraces free speech more, okay, well, who's to say that in 10 years or 15 years or whatever, he's gone and somebody comes in and they crack down more. The other thing is um, Elon Musk has his own blind spots. You know, is he going to allow on like a, um, a Tesla union account 
you know, there's a lot of there's been a lot of negative stories written about Elon Musk. Is he going to sort of Hunter Biden laptop those stories? Because <laughs> you know, I was against when they pulled down the Hunter Biden laptop story. That was crazy. It was censorship, you know, leading up to an election. Um, and so, will he allow the supercritical things of him? Uh, I don't know. Maybe he will. Maybe he will. <laughs> if he does, that's wonderful. But I'm skeptical that he'll do that. I, you know, it, it remains to be seen whether or not he'd do something like that. So. Well, the other thing is, I've pointed out a number of times now, like, yes, the real test of whether or not you believe in free speech is, like, will you allow on your true ideological opponents? So you asked me, hey, was the Internet death penalty the correct price for Trump to pay for all of his shenanigans? I'd say no. I think he should be allowed back on Twitter. But if you ask Elon Musk, hey, there was a mass banning of Antifa accounts a year or two ago. Are you going to bring back the big Antifa accounts? I don't know what he'd say to that. I don't know what he'd say to that. And what, what will the policies be moving forward, even if he does embrace freedom of speech? Because, you know, we all agree you shouldn't allow on, like, actual crimes being committed. You can't record a murder or a robbery or put up, you know, things of a sexual nature that involve underage people. Like, obviously, you can't do those things. Crimes aren't allowed. But then uh, libel, defamation, and slander are things that are illegal, even with our First Amendment and our embrace of free speech. That obviously shouldn't be allowed on Twitter. Doxing, same thing. So I don't know. It's like... The debate is actually a lot more nuanced and intricate and complex than people give it credit for. And I'm just unsure that Elon Musk, um, even though he positions himself as I care deeply about free speech, I'm not sure how well he's going to navigate this, or even if he's going to have the ability to have um, direct control of the platform in a way that everybody is just sort of assuming that he will. And then we have other issues involving Elon, like, and you can go back and check the Secular Talk archives on Elon Musk. There's been times he's just lied about stuff, like, like his tax rate, for example. He does, this, um, he does this trick, this like tax avoidance scheme called buy, borrow, die. And if I remember correctly, the whole idea behind it is you don't take much of a salary from your company or companies that you own. Um, what you do is borrow from a bank against your stock. And that's a way for you to just dodge paying taxes completely. And he did that for a while. When he kind of got caught doing that, then he made a big show of paying taxes. There was that uh, great investigative report from ProPublica, which looked into a bunch of different billionaires like Bloomberg, Elon Musk, you know, a number of them, Jeff Bezos. And they calculated what's called, hey, this is their true tax rate. And I think the number for Elon was 3.27% in taxes he paid over a certain period of time. I don't know if it was a year or like two or three years or something like that. And um, I guess my point here is the billionaires are not going to come save us. <laughs> like, and to my audience, you guys are not going to be too surprised to hear that, and you probably sort of agree with me intuitively on that, but the real solution for Twitter, and this is something that, look, I welcome every single independent and conservative who would agree with me on this, even though I think this actually is more of a, you know, the true leftist position, if you will. I think the real answer is to regulate Twitter like it's a, a public utility. I would do that with all the big social media companies. I would do it with Twitter, I do it with Facebook, maybe Instagram and some others. These are now the new public square. And the whole idea of the public square is that's where we should have free speech. Government can't lock you up for speaking your mind, right? And I think the same thing should apply in terms of no banning and deplatforming and, and censorship in the public square. We should expand First Amendment protections and have Twitter regulated like a public utility. And until we get to that point, I think we're just moving deck chairs around on the Titanic. And... You know, even if you grant, hey, Elon Musk, I think he has pure intentions with this whole free speech 
space. There's still so many hurdles until we get to that point. And then there's the execution of the implementation of those ideas, which also might lead to some roadblocks. So best case scenario, this would just be sort of a stopgap, even if you accept all the premises about he means well and he's actually going to implement it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the real answer. And, I, and the other thing is, final point, I don't, like there's this libertarian idea too of like, well, let's just compete our way out of this. And you've seen this on YouTube. There's been a bunch of, you know, YouTube uh, competitors that have popped up over the years. Now there's Rumble um, with Twitter. There originally was Gab, but that genuinely became like Nazi central. It's kind of crazy. Um, Even Truth Social, Trump's thing, was an attempt to compete with Twitter. So this libertarian idea of, yes, these big platforms have problems. They're too censorious. We need a new, more free and open alternative. Anytime somebody tries to create that business, it inevitably fails. And so I don't think the answer is just, you know, free market capitalism, let's compete our way out of this, and, you know, then everything will be all good. So really the only answer as far as I can see is expand First Amendment protections, regulate these social media companies like their public utilities to embrace free speech, and also, you know, I have some sort of rules around the algorithm. Because, now, I mean, the algorithms are so immediate, uh, immensely rigged, particularly on YouTube, where... It's a rigged game, you know. It, it's not. It's not a fair fight by any stretch of the imagination. Authoritative news content always uh, overrides that of independent and new media creators on the left and the right. And I don't think that's fair, and I don't think that's just. So, I'll say in regards to Elon and Twitter, I'm just an interested observer, uh, waiting to see what happens. And um, obviously, I'll report whatever updates end up coming to you guys. All right, next. So Alex Jones, we have quite a fascinating story here about him. Um, He's obviously been in court over his Sandy Hook comments. There was a big uh, lawsuit around this. Now, he was found what's called guilty by default in those cases, which just means it wasn't necessarily on the merits of the case. It's the fact that he was legally obligated to provide documents to the court, and he didn't provide those documents. So it's a very rare thing that happened, but it happened. They found him guilty by default. Um, there's, I guess, civil lawsuits as well around what Alex Jones is doing. Now, he offered, I think, about $110,000 or $120,000 per family um, trying to settle. They rejected that. Um, he skipped a deposition. Now, since then, he has gone to the deposition. But he was, looking at, he was doing financial maneuvers behind the scenes to protect himself. Um, monetarily. And so he had these like shell companies and I think he took $18 million that was part of his Infowars companies and put them into uh, these new shell companies. We reported on that recently. Well, now we have another update. So take a look at this. This is in Raw Story. Alex Jones considering Chapter 11 bankruptcy to stall lawsuits report. This is actually originally from Bloomberg. Let me give you uh, more of what they say here. Jones has been begging fans for help after he was found liable in a defamation lawsuit brought by relatives of Sandy Hook children killed in 2012 that he called a hoax. The InfoWars founder has yet to learn what monetary damages he will have to pay, and the new report claims he is meeting with advisors about filing for Chapter 11 protection. According to Bloomberg, a Chapter 11 filing would aim to allow Jones' businesses, such as InfoWars and free speech systems, to keep operating while pausing civil litigation against them, said the person who has not to be identified because the discussions are private. Adding, lawyers representing Jones and his businesses have said the defamation lawsuit was strategically filed or, yeah, to silence their free speech on matters of public interest, according to court filings. 
Just over a week ago, Jones was accused by the Sandy Hook families of hiding a jaw-dropping amount of cash, with the Daily Beast reporting Jones allegedly transferred $18 million out of his company starting when the family sued him in 2018 and transferred the funds to a company called PQR, which they claim is controlled by Jones or his family members. Okay, so this was the article last night, which I prepped for the show this morning. Um, Since then, it actually happened. It actually happened. So Axios is reporting InfoWars files for bankruptcy after Sandy Hook defamation lawsuits. So we actually did it. He pulled the trigger. Let me read you what it says here. Alex Jones InfoWars on Sunday filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in the Southern District of Texas with an estimated liability of as much as $10 million. Two other companies owned by Jones filed for bankruptcy as well, each with an estimated liability of up to $10 million. Jones was found liable for damages in a defamation lawsuit arising from his claims that the 2012 Sandy Hook school shooting was a giant hoax. The companies that filed were InfoWars, InfoWars Health, and Prison Planet TV. Jones had said that the Sandy Hook massacre was a false flag operation planned by crisis actors. As a result, several families sued him for his unsubstantiated conspiracy theories. A trial to determine how much Jones should pay in damages to the families that sued him over his hoax claims has yet to take place per Bloomberg. Okay, so the the noteworthy thing here is, so he actually pulled the trigger and filed for bankruptcy. He did it for InfoWars, InfoWars Health, and Prison Planet TV. Those are some of his companies. Now, InfoWars Health, the idea... That InfoWars Health, his InfoWars store, which he sells a lot of these questionable supplements and, um, you know, sells merch. The idea that, you know, that that business is struggling, that he's really going belly up on that front, is absolutely preposterous. Because even with all the social media bans, he's still operating. I think he, last I checked, he's on this outlet called Band.tv. And his own store swims in money. So hold on. I actually have the reporting here for you guys. Um, this, is, this is from January 7th, 2022. So this is recent. Rolling Stone says Alex Jones raked in $165 million over three years selling supplements and prepper gear. Wow. That's a lot of money. So I think they have – I'm looking for it now. Okay. So to be fair – the, the years where this happened, it's over three years beginning in September 2015. That's where they got the records from. So 15, 16, 17, 18. So like from 2015 to 2018, roughly. That's the amount of money he made in there. So it is possible that, because I think the bans happened after that. So it is possible that since then, all, you know, the money's dried up. But I highly doubt he actually has a cash flow problem. His outlet even with all the social media bans and whatnot, is phenomenally successful. He's a colossally wealthy man. I mean, look, again, Alex Jones raked in $165 million over three years. $165 million. And that's just, just his merchandise, his supplements and his prepper gear and his shirts and his mugs and all that shit. So make no mistake about it. This is Alex Jones consulting with his lawyers, his lawyers saying, hey, man, you know, there are some tricks we can use to protect your assets and, uh, you know, shield you from really having to pay too much or at least shield you from really having to lose everything as a result of these cases. And that's what he's doing. And that's what he's doing. So I'm very curious to see, and I asked you guys this in the last video, what do you think he's actually going to be ordered to pay? What do you think he's actually going to be ordered to pay to the Sandy Hook families who sued and won 
Because if they rejected one hundred and ten or one hundred twenty thousand dollars each, are they looking for what five million each, something to that effect? And how much will these moves with shell companies and filing for bankruptcy and moving the money around? How much is that going to actually protect Alex Jones? Where is he largely going to get out of this unscathed? I mean, you might have to pay something, but I don't think it's going to really take him down in any serious sense. So anyway. Uh, that's what's going on with Alex Jones right now. Just filed for bankruptcy. He's been moving money around in the shell companies. I do think he'll find a way to largely protect himself from any sort of worst-case scenario. And, you know, I, he's not going to serve any jail time or whatever over the comments. And that case, look, that case I actually find really interesting for a number of reasons. And I've laid this out for you guys before, but I'll run through it one more time for those of you who perhaps haven't seen those segments. The case actually, in my opinion, how he was found guilty by default, it went kind of the best way it, it could have gone. Because if he was found guilty on the merits, I think that was a leap, and it does set a bad free speech precedent. Because Alex Jones himself, he was spreading these horrific conspiracy theories and saying Sandy Hook was a hoax and um, saying they were crisis actors and doing all these things. And those things were factually wrong. Like, he was dead wrong. But what really happened is, the, there were a number of psychos in his own audience who they have agency. They then took it the next step where when Alex Jones says all this stuff, they go look up, you know, what are their addresses? And then they go harass them and do all these negative things. So you can make a case for like incitement, but I think incitement by the legal definition needs to be like Alex Jones actually telling them to go do some sort of violence or whatever. And he didn't do that. And from my reading of, of the facts of the case, he didn't, give out addresses or say, you know, take action in your own hands or anything like that. So really, it's just a loathsome guy talking about horrendous conspiracies. And then the people who actually committed the crimes were the, you know, borderline psychopaths in the audience. And so those people really, first and foremost, are guilty and need to be locked up because they actually committed crimes, targeted harassment, some attempted violence. These families had to move a bunch of times. I have nothing but sympathy for the families. So then that puts Alex Jones in a situation where, like, if he's found guilty on the merits of the case, that does set a bad free speech precedent, because then anybody who advocates some sort of conspiracy and then somebody else takes that next step and does something bad as a result of those conspiracies, you could go after that person. That's like, should Bill O'Reilly have gone to prison or had to pay millions of dollars because he always said, Tiller the baby killer, Tiller the baby killer, and then some psycho in his audience went and killed George Tiller? I would argue, no, he's being reckless, he's being irresponsible, he should feel something on his conscience, but you can't legally go after him for that because the person who should really go down is the person who killed George Tiller, right? So it's a weird situation with Alex Jones where, like, he's – in the real world, the effects of his actions are so deleterious and negative that he should feel guilty about it deeply and should never do anything like that ever again. But in terms of legal consequences, it's just a little too much of a stretch to go after him. So what ended up happening, again, was he was found guilty by default, which just means – he didn't give the proper paperwork to the court, which he had to do, and so he was found guilty as a result of that. I really think it's the best-case scenario, because this way, he's guilty, but it's also not setting a bad precedent. And so it sort of worked out for everybody. But now, again, I don't know with these latest moves from him, filing for bankruptcy and uh, moving money around to shell companies, I don't know just how much he's going to be able to shield himself and if he'll largely escape any sort of accountability. That's yet to be seen. We'll find out very shortly, and as soon as we do, I'll bring you guys the information, because clearly I'm very interested and borderline obsessed with this case. Okay. All right, next.
Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk. I'll do this one, Nona. We'll take a quick break. So Charlie Kirk uh, was doing his radio show, I guess, the other day, and um, he said something that is <laughs> astonishing, even for Charlie Kirk. He tries to link trans people to the issue of inflation and blames like the same sort of mindset that leads to people being trans leads to inflation happening in the country. I don't know. You guys watch, and then I'll respond. why we take such a strong stance and opinion on the trans issue is it's an issue of reality. You do not get to determine your own reality. You do not get to all of a sudden say, I'm rich or I'm poor. No, we actually have to look at some evidence of whether or not you're rich or poor. Now, some of those are relative terms. Rich according to who? Rich according to what? I understand that. But relatively, some of the terms we use, short, tall, you can't just make them up. You say, oh, wow, that person is taller than that person. That person is faster than that person. That person is stronger than that person. And one of the reasons why we've been so insistent against this idea you can change your gender or change your sex or change both of them is that when you start to indulge in the belief that you could become whatever you want and reality is subjective, not objective, you're going to have ramifications that nobody anticipated or intended. So there's a direct connection to inflation and the trans issue. I said, Charlie, come on, they couldn't be further apart. No, they're exactly the same. They're the same in this aspect. When you believe that men can become women, why wouldn't you also believe that you could print wealth? If you believe that someone can change their gender, why wouldn't you also believe that money is wealth? Now, there are very simple laws of economics, just like there's laws of nature, there's laws of physics, laws of thermodynamics, laws of biology. We must live, to, we must live according to those laws. <sighs> I'm so tired, man. I'm so tired. Like, we get it, Charlie. We get it. You are defining yourself as, I'm the right-wing guy. That's who I am. I'm Mr. Right-wing. I'm Mr. Conservative Republican. I get it, I get it, I get it. The posturing, I mean, this is nothing but like right-wing virtue signaling. I'm the right-wingiest of the right-wingers. I'm the pure conservative Republican, and I'm going to make those pure conservative Republican arguments to the point where you stretch something to absurdity. You stretch something to absurdity. All right, so, so let's go through this. He starts out by saying trans, it, the trans issue is, quote, an issue of reality. We've been insistent against this idea you can change your gender or change your sex. So... The idea that it's an issue of reality, yeah, I'd argue everything is an issue of reality. The nuance that exists with trans people in particular is that they may be born biologically male or female, but they feel like they are the opposite. So that's why the term gender exists. It is absolutely accurate to say you can't change your biological sex. True, you're born with whatever you're born with, and that is your biological sex. But gender is the thing that is more fluid. And if you want to talk about reality, this is something that exists in reality. It exists in nature in the same way that gay people exist in nature. Some people just like the same sex. That's 
natural to a certain percentage of the population. That is reality. It is also reality that some people are born with one biological sex, but they feel like the opposite, and so they can identify their gender as the opposite. Like, I don't, it, it's not that hard to wrap your mind around the idea of a trans person. It's not that hard. You're born one way, you feel like the opposite, and so you, you try to present as the opposite. That is your gender, quite separate from your biological sex, which is what it is at birth. We all agree to that, or every reasonable person agrees to that. But again, I don't know, why, why are you so obsessed with this? I don't understand why you're so obsessed with this issue. Then he says there's a direct connection to inflation and the trans issue. If you believe that men can become women, why wouldn't you believe that you can print wealth? He's just too perfect because he's actually showing his own ignorance on the issue of inflation. Now, I will grant him this. I don't fault him for feeling this way initially because it's, it's what I thought was going on initially. As soon as inflation really hit, I immediately went to my more economics-minded friends. And um, some of them are literally economists. And I asked them a bunch of questions because my layman's assumption was, well, Trump did a number of like COVID bailout things, largely went to corporations, but he did a number of COVID bailout things. Then Biden did a big COVID bailout thing. Um, it's got to be because we're flooding the zone with money. We're flooding the country with money that you're devaluing the currency. And so that's what's leading to inflation. That's what I thought. What they impressed upon me in no uncertain terms is that I, I was just dead wrong in what I thought led to inflation. That the real thing that's leading to the bulk of the inflation is the supply chain. And since then, I've read a number of articles that explain in a really clear way how it is the supply chain that is leading to inflation. Now, you could also say, uh, you know, Matt Stoller has written a number of pieces on this about how it's also monopolies that are leading to inflation. When you have more consolidation uh, among very few companies in certain industries, they could like pretty much agree to jack up the prices. And, you know, that's manifesting as inflation. Corporate greed is also bringing about inflation. We covered a story that was in Business Insider, I think, about how Walmart is jacking up prices, even of things that are really not impacted by inflation. They're using the excuse of inflation to say, oh, it's inflation. We had to raise the price of it. When really not, they're not. It's going to corporate profits. Stoller had a great article that I think like 60% of inflation is attributable to corporate greed, which is astonishing when you think about it. So really, those are the culprits. Culprits are corporate greed, monopolization, and the supply chain, which got all screwed up because of COVID. Charlie Kirk is, is, is implying here, if not outright saying here, that, well, the real thing leading to inflation is the thing that I originally thought, which is we're just, print, we're just printing too much money. It's, got, it's just that we're printing too much money. That's not true. And even, like, it's such a confused point, too, because I have no doubt there are definitely trans people out there who might be more on the Austrian economic side of the debate, like Austrianism versus Keynesianism. They might agree with the right-wing economic stuff. I'm sure there are trans people out there who would agree, and they'd be wrong, by the way, with Charlie Kirk that, you know, that the printing the money is the problem or there's too much spending and that's the problem. So it's not like the idea that if you think this, you have to think that. It's not true. And also, it, printing money or spending, you know, government spending money is not always a bad thing. It can be bad in certain circumstances. It absolutely can be bad. But, you know, it's Japan, for example, has a it's like their debt to GDP ratio is super out of whack. They're like the worst in the world with their debt to GDP ratio. And they're doing all right. <laughs> like they're doing OK. 
So it's not, you know, there was a lot of uh, spending that went on during the, the New Deal era, and it was the correct thing at the time. So it's just like, it's, it's lazy economic thinking, and it's lazy social issues thinking. And he's just slapping these two things together so he could do the thing I explained before, which is the right-wing virtue signaling posturing. Like, I'm the most right-wing. I am the most pure of the conservative Republicans. And I'm just so t- Honestly, I've got to be honest with you guys. I'm tired of that everywhere. I'm tired of that on the left, too. The people who are like, I'm the leftiest of the left-wingers. I'm the purest of the left-wingers. And so, therefore, you can only take my word for things. Like, even if I grant you the whole, like, I'm the leftiest of the left-wingers thing, and then, like, who cares? That doesn't equal being correct. Charlie Kirk posturing as the purest of the right-wingers here and slapping these two right-wing issues together is not, like, that doesn't mean you are correct. If anything, it means you're one of the more lazy commentators out there on the right. This is just, like, low-hanging fruit for you. It's, it's such a weird claim. There's a direct connection between inflation and the trans issue. You want to know why? Because the trans people are living in a fantasy world, and the people who brought about inflation are living in a fantasy world, bro. You get it? They're stupid. They're crazy. That's the problem, is they don't think about, like, facts, bro. Again, you want to talk about facts? What leads to inflation is what I just described leads to inflation. You want to talk about facts? It is a fact that the trans phenomena exists. There's some percentage of the population, albeit a small percentage of the population, that is born with the biological sex one way and they feel the opposite. And that's why we have this term gender, which allows for that nuance and identifying different ways, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, there you have it. God, man. I don't know how anybody watches this stuff and likes it. I really don't. Like, is there some, like, you know, self-identifying conservative college kid out there who watches this and thinks like, oh, Charlie, <laughs> that was clever. You put the trans issue with the inflation issue. <laughs> wow, your right-wing power level is through the roof, buddy. <laughs> I, just, I beg of people to think about issues in, in as objective a way as you possibly can. Don't just lump your lot in with, I'm the right wing or I'm the left wing and you know, and just sort of cosign all of the idiocy that's spewed. It's just, it's gross. It's just ugly. It's just pathetic to watch. And this is such a great example of that kind of thinking. The posturing is the, you know, most right-wing conservative Republican slapping together two, you know, right-wing causes and acting like you made some high-minded, brilliant point. Not even close, dog. Not even close. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, I got a bombshell hidden video of a congressman explaining how D.C. is even more corrupt than you realize. Stay right there.
All right, we are back, y'all. We are back in this bitch. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. So there's a outlet called the Undercurrent. I believe that's what it's called. Hold on, give me one second. And let me... Correct, Undercurrent, it's called. Um, I think they do... I've used them before. They've gotten some interesting videos here and there, um, like behind-the-scenes stuff. It's sort of like uh, investigative reporting um, that's like independent outlet that does investigative reporting. Anyway, um, they went to, and God bless them for this because I, I would never would, they went to a Mo Brooks event. Mo Brooks is a congressman from Alabama. And um, they ended up getting a story here, which is, in my opinion, a colossal bombshell. Like, this should be big breaking news on all the major media outlets if they took their job seriously and their outrage meter wasn't broken. That's the problem with mainstream media. Their outrage meter is just totally broken. They get, like, all worked up over stupid things, and, like, the biggest stories, they're like, yawn. And so that brings us to where we are now. So Mo Brooks, tells a story basically about how Washington really works. And um, I got to be honest with you guys. I mean, I've been, I've been doing this for a decade, this show. And one of my top issues is corruption. Like, let's stop the corruption. And this proves to me it's even worse than I thought. Because maybe I should save, it, save this for after the segment, but... The general idea is everything is implied in D.C. Hey, when I give you a campaign contribution, you know, you look out for me and forget your constituents. Like, first and foremost, represent me, whether it's a billionaire or a corporation, some lobbyist. But it turns out, in some instances, it's not implied. There are, like, straight up what's called a quid pro quo, which is like, it's almost like it's all vocalized. If I do this for you, you do this for me. Now, that is actually illegal. The bar is very high. Like, to prove corruption in our current system is nearly impossible because we've legalized a, a certain kind of bribery. But according to what Mo Brooks says here, there actually are many instances of legit quid pro quos. And it's like part of how the system works. This is astonishing. Take a look. Are the most expensive, uh, are middling. A is the most expensive. 
is the most expensive because those are the committees that the special interest groups care the most about. So where does a congressman come up with a million dollars to be chairman of one of these eight committees? And you can't get it from Joe and Jane Citizen because Joe and Jane Citizen back home, they're not going to be contributing that kind of money. They don't have it. They need that money for their own family. Okay? So let me finish. Let me finish. And so you have to get it from the special interest group. And with the special interest group, there is a quick pro quo. If you don't do what they tell you to do, they won't give you the money that finances your chairmanship. I had one guy who ran for chairman of the NRCC, which is where Republicans pay their money for these committee assignments and chairmanships, just as the Democrats pay theirs to the DCCC. And this guy who wanted to be chair of the NRCC actually had a brochure. And that brochure had price listings written on it. And his, his argument for getting elected was, elect me, I will charge you less. Now you understand how the public policy debate is corrupted. When to be in a position of power, you have to do what the special interest groups require, which undermines the public policy debate. The money now is triumph. And I'll give you a second example, so it's not Mo Brooks talking, but there's real evidence to back this up. Congressman Thomas Massey, who by the way endorsed me yesterday, uh, this afternoon, uh, I should add that Rand Paul has also endorsed me from Kentucky. Um, he had a lobbyist come up to him, and the lobbyist said, look, I will pay your $500,000 to be a ways and means if you will sponsor this patent bill. Thomas is brilliant, he has patents, MIT grad, and, Pat, and Thomas said, okay, I'll look at it. And he looked at it and said, no, this first the small inventor. The people with the power and the money are going to use that power and money to steal the patent rights from the person who actually had the idea who should be reaping the rewards of that idea. And so Thomas went back to the lobby and said, nope, I'm not going to do it. The lobby said, okay, I'm not going to pay that $500,000. Thomas Massey got that published on the front page of USA Today, that story. And I saw it and I'm going, finally, somebody else in the House of Representatives who is honorable, who is ethical, and sees the corruption associated with this process. And I went to Thomas and said, thank you for doing that. And Thomas responded, uh, well, I made one big mistake. That looked good to me. Said, well, I talk about it in terms of buying committee assignments when really it's a rental agreement you have to pay every two years. Now, the, the national media knows about this. Both political parties do it. So neither party rises to the occasion and makes this a major public policy issue. That would increase exposure about what's getting done. But if you want to know why our government is not properly facing the challenges that are in front of the United States of America, that more than anything else is the reason. Wow. Wow. And that guy, by the way, is a Republican, and he's blowing the whistle on this. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm sure if you go to Mo Brooks, his Open Secrets profile, which, and they track money in politics very closely, um, you'll see this guy's taking money from all sorts of special interests and lobbyists and corporations and PACs, et cetera, et cetera. And, by the way, that guy, he brings up Thomas Massey there. 
Thomas Massey is like the closest current thing in Congress to what Ron Paul was. Thomas Massey is no Ron Paul. There's famous stories about how um, lobbyists used to skip over um, Ron Paul's office and Bernie Sanders' office because they know these guys aren't bendable. Their minds are made up. Like they're not like they're they're ac- they're actually ideological in how they function, and I mean that in a positive connotation. Thomas Massey. What's amazing is that story he just referenced, which I by the way missed at the time in USA Today. Um, the lobbyist who was in that interaction with Thomas Massey was pissed about the fact that Massey was blowing the whistle on this. So come to find out, that lobbyist comes out a little later on and explains to everybody, and there was another article on this apparently, that actually Thomas Massey, the very week after that, was calling me and asking me to to give him more money and was meeting with me and a bunch of other lobbyists and was asking for more money for doing more fundraising for his campaign. So, like, in other words, even the guys who blow the whistle are like, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the way the system works. Like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I got to do what I got to do. I got to play ball. So even the guys who are like, this is kind of messed up, are also like, can you please give me some money for my campaign and then I'll serve you? So that's just, that's just to give all the facts and let everybody know. But, hey, I'm happy he's saying it. I'm happy he's explaining it to, to everybody. Because, again, it's even worse than I realized. And I'm the guy who wrote my, my college thesis on what's called clean elections, which is getting the private money out of the elections, the corporate money out of the elections, and just basically having a system where it's publicly financed so the politicians can genuinely have, uh, you know, elections where it's competing ideas, where it's like, this is my ideology. Okay, well, this is my ideology. Now let's let the American people choose which one they find better. So what he says is it costs a million dollars to head one of the committees. Now those committees, by the way, shape all of the policies and all the legislation that eventually gets voted on. So it costs a million dollars. Well, like he said, you can't go to Joe and Jane, random person, in order to get that money. It's hard to raise it through small dollar donations. So you just have, you know, some corporation pay for it. And then your main purpose in life now becomes, how do I serve the people who just paid for me to get on this committee? They're number one on your list. So it's a million dollars to head the committee. It's $500,000 to be on a committee. And he even says he saw politicians literally shopping around with their price tag saying, look, I'll do more for less. So I'll, I'll represent you to the max for even less money. So that's why you should pick me to try to be head of the committee or whatever. It's astonishing. So what we learned is not just that there are quid pro quos, but also, and he explains this clearly, the DNC and NRCC are just corporate money laundering institutions. That's the whole point. The whole point is, Let's put a veneer of respectability on what we're doing here and, you know, have a middleman where the corporate money and billionaire money and lobbyist money goes to the DNC and the NRCC, and then they give it to the politicians. And it looks like, well, I took a contribution from the DNC because I have democratic politics and the DNC is all about democratic ideas. And it's like, no, they are really there to launder the money from like, you know, Pfizer and Blue Cross Blue Shield and Raytheon and Exxon, fill in the blank with whatever corporations, right? So, guys, it's worse than I realized. And this is why, you know, it's what? Congress always has an approval rating around like 22% or some shit. That's not an accident. That's not an accident. And the American people aren't wrong. 
like they are right to feel that way. People know there's this gut instinct of like, even if I'm voting, I know I'm always voting for like a lesser evil. This is crazy. So, I mean, look, really the main answer here to address this specific problem is to end the corruption. Now that's easier said than done. There's so many different avenues of corruption. You know, there's the revolving door is a big problem as well, which we didn't even touch on in this. Not only are there campaign contributions, but there's the direct investments that politicians make in the stock market, then they try to boost those stocks that they just invested in. There's so many different avenues of corruption. But really, the way to crack down on this is to try to ban every avenue of corruption. And also, look, treat being corrupt like it's up there with the worst crimes, because it is. Like it's up there with like assault and robbery and murder. You know, like I would crack down on it hard because I don't see any other way out of this. Now, that is easier said than done. It would be so difficult to cut off all the different avenues of corruption. Really, to get the, the money out of the system, you would need like a constitutional convention, which is very difficult. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try all those things because we should. But there is a, a way around this. That's what people need to understand. There is a way to address this that's kind of like a shortcut. And that's the idea of direct democracy. So some sort of federal direct ballot initiative where every time you vote for president, you also vote on like the top five issues. So if I have so much more faith in the American people than I do in these politicians, it's not even close. Because even if I disagree with Steve down the street, at least I know Steve is not, you know, swimming in cash from Lockheed Martin. You understand what I'm saying? Swimming in cash from Goldman Sachs. So, and look, Right-wingers should support this, too, because if you guys believe in right-wing ideas, then you feel like, hey, I'll take my chance of being able to convince everybody around me that my belief on whatever issue it is is correct. Fair enough. Look, I'll take it. And then let's vote directly on those issues. Let's, vote, let's have a national direct ballot initiative on the idea of $15 minimum wage. Let's have a national direct ballot initiative on the idea of the PRO Act, which is a you know, pro-union piece of legislation with a whole bunch of different provisions in there. Let's vote nationally on, I don't know, you tell me, a variety of things. Abolishing student debt, that, that's one that might actually be close in terms of the results. I'll, I'll take my chances with the American people. And you know what? If, if I lose that one, well, maybe four years from now or eight years from now, it'll pop up again on the direct ballot initiative, and we can vote directly on it. That's like Mike Gravel had this idea, and he said it should be another branch of government, like the people's branch of government. I love that idea. Now, if that's too hard to set up, just do it through a, a law. And let's do it that way. How We have to find a way. Because this is why I truly believe that this is one of the main reasons why people are so turned off to politics is because they might not know the specifics of this, but they have this feeling. It's, it's like this instinct of like, something ain't right. And I'm wasting my time because none of them are representing me anyway. And if you give people a direct say, I think more people will get involved. And so that's the way to go around this. But really, we should address it at the core as well with anti-corruption measures. But look, guys, again, it's worse than I thought, and the story is astounding. And of course, you're not going to hear a goddamn word about it on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, any of the nightly news outlets. In a political media environment that wasn't broken, this would be huge news. It would lead to a week-long coverage. Well, how are we going to change? we got to change this. This is crazy. These people are betraying us, the American people. They're betraying their voters. This is a cesspool of corruption. But none of them are even going to talk about it. There's not going to be a peep on any of the outlets. By the way, you want to know why? Well, this is one of the main reasons why. The same corporations that are paying these politicians for favors and legislation in their favor are the same corporations that are advertising on mainstream media. And 
you know, you can go read uh, Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent, and he lays out a similar dynamic in detail to understand the way these things work. But there's, you know, the hiring process is where a lot of the decisions get made. They only hire people who they know are not going to rock the boat too much, not going to look too much under the hood. And um, that's how we get a situation where Wolf Blitzer and Brian Stelter are on, are on air for a 1,000 hours a day. And so you're not going to get real news. You're not going to get good information and facts. You're going to get, you know, a very conventional, calm, status quo supporting way of discussing things. And uh, that's where we are. So it re- it's astonishing. It really is astonishing. This should be huge news. And we're going to be like one of the only outlets that talks about it. That's, oh, man. All right, there you go. That's the video. And uh, I've, I've given a number of things that I think are solutions, but let's sit back and watch as none of them are even tried, because that's where we're at, apparently. Okay. Next. So this is a video that came out about a week ago, but I couldn't help myself. I had to, I had to cover it today. Um, Ted Cruz was doing an event. He does a podcast called The Verdict or something like that with uh, Michael Knowles, who's known as the, um, the D-string of the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro's outlet. I think that's so accurate, or the second stringer of, or third stringer of uh, the Daily Wire. Um, you have somebody in the audience here who's clearly not in agreement politically with Michael Knowles and, and Ted Cruz, and he's going to ask them a hilarious question. Watch. Um, assuming that would end global hunger, would you fillet another man? certainly would not end world hunger because he was in power for four years and he didn't even try. There's that. I will say Ted's answer uh, is not bad. It was, it was, it was kind of witty. It was kind of punchy. So I'll give credit where it's due. Look, this, the, I do not like Ted Cruz even a little bit, but that was not bad. That was, that was a good response. Uh, the real one who annoyed me there was uh, Michael Knowles. <laughs> He's a, he, first, he goes immediately to a typical uh, – I don't know why he does the fake announcer voice thing. You're a typical left-wing undergraduate, and you're engaging in consequentialist ethics, and you're trying to justify flagrantly immoral acts. Wait, so a man blowing a man is fragrant, flagrantly – that's a funny word to put there – flagrantly immoral? Really? Now, look – I press him on that, he might be like, well, I misstated that, I, you know, I didn't mean that. 
Um, I'm not trying to say that gay sex is uh, evil or unethical or immoral or whatever, but that is what he did say there. Blowing another man is flagrantly immoral. And then he goes on to say the ends don't justify the means. Um, I love that question because it is the most, like, it is a very college question, isn't it? It is a very, like, let's make up this preposterous scenario that makes absolutely no sense, but test what people think on it. Loki, it would have been super based if uh, Cruz was like, yeah, yeah, I'd do that. Now, by the way, my, like, I don't know about you guys, but I had a little bit of a hint of the gaydar going off early on when I was, when I, you know, learned about Ted Cruz and watched the way he acted. But remember, guys, he did like a porn tweet on 9-11. And when he liked that porn tweet, it was not gay porn. It was, uh, was it like incest porn or, I don't know, it was like, um, trying to remember. But I think there was some, like, MILF woman or something and, somebody else, and, he, you know, he did the whole thing of, like, oh, I cannot believe that my staffer did that. Me, I'm Ted Cruz. Me, I beat off. Me. He did the whole, like, I, I fired the staffer who was looking at the boobies because boobies are wrong, and I like Jesus, and Jesus didn't have any boobies. <laughs> me. Heidi, don't be mad at me. Me. Is that his wife's name? I think that's his wife's name. Again, I, I, would, I would respect, he'd never do this, but I would respect if when he liked the porn tweet and then he was asked about it, he was like, yeah, sometimes I watch porn, what's up? <laughs> I would have respected that. And I don't know, can you make a, a hypocrisy point if you were to admit that? I don't think you can. I mean, has he, oh, no, you can actually, because I remember a story from years ago. It was in Mother Jones. Ted, let me, let me make sure I get this right. Ted Cruz tries to ban dildos. Okay, nope, nope. It's rated as mostly false. So the New York Post, Ted Cruz is the same senator who once supported a ban on sex toys. Uh, Mostly false. This is in uh, PolitiFact. Damn, I sort of want to go through this whole article now, but let's not, let's not. I, I had thought there was an article in Mother Jones that talked about how he took up some case in, in Texas that would have effectively, as like a consequence of it, banned sex toys. So I don't know if they're making the nuanced argument of like that wasn't the intent, but that would have happened, or, or if he just didn't do that. I don't know. But anyway, uh, so I don't know if you can make a hypocrisy point. I don't know if you can make a hypocrisy point to him on that if he liked porn. Because I don't know, as he said, anti-porn statements. Let's look that up. Ted Cruz anti-porn. Let's see. There's an article in CNN in 2017, Ted Cruz and Porn, A Brief History. <laughs> Should I click it? All right, I'll click it. Uh, see, we're, just, we're just fucking around now. We're just having fun now. Um, at its national convention last summer, the GOP passed a draft platform provision declaring pornography with its harmful effects, especially on children, has become a public health crisis that is destroying the life of millions. What? <laughs> and yet, as just about everyone with Internet access is now aware, Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican presidential candidate in 2016, appeared to have liked a porn video on Twitter, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there are a number of people on the team that have access to the account, and it appears that someone inadvertently hit the like button. Ain't nothing inadvertent about it, dog. So anyway, if he signed on to that platform, then yeah, there is a hypocrisy angle you could bring up, but it would sort of be based if he was like, yeah, my bad, accidentally liked a porn tweet, but I was looking at it. What are you going to do? I'm human. Just like it would have been based if he was like, 
look, to end world hunger. Yeah, of course. Like, if you tell me, hey, Ted, you could stop, like, 100 people from going hungry if you blow somebody. I don't know, dog. I don't know. We got to up that number. Then maybe I'll slob on that knob like corn on the cob. So, but he'd never answer like that. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, Ted Cruz's response gets a 7.5. It was pretty solid, 7.5. Would you vote for Donald Trump if it ended world hunger? Um, Michael Knowles is a 2 out of 10. Because his was too, like, too prudish and too yuppie-ish. And two, like, he's trying to be serious with it in response. Typical left-wing undergraduate engaging in consequentialist ethics, and you're trying to justify flagrantly immoral acts. And let me tell you, sir, the ends don't justify the means. But would I blow a man to end world hunger? I'd blow 42 of them for nothing. I didn't just say that. I'm just joking. I'm just joking, everybody. Relax. Don't cancel me. Okay. So the other day, we talked about how Nina Turner um, was backstabbed by Pramila Jayapal, by the Congressional Progressive Caucus. We had uh, Nina Turner on Crystal Kyle and Friends the other week, and um, it was a wonderful conversation we had with her. Well, now you guys are going to see here just how desperate they are to keep Nina Turner out of power. Now, Nina Turner is, is an actual change agent. She really believes in moving us much more towards a social democracy. And that threatens people with money and power and influence. That threatens the lobbyists. That threatens the corporations. That even threatens the institutional power in the Democratic Party, the establishment of the Democratic Party. She really would shake things up. And she would demand more of the so-called progressive caucus and demand more of the Justice Democrats. She's a leader. I don't see any others who are real leaders. Every now and then, you'll have, you know, Cory Bush or Ilhan Omar do something based, like Cory trying to end the uh, eviction ban, um, or Ilhan Omar saying, I don't want to sanction all the Russian economy. Russian civilians will get hurt. Every now and then they do something. Even AOC tried to um, force a vote on the, the stock ban for members of Congress. So every now and then they do something good, but they're not, I lo- okay, they're not leaders. They're not leaders. And I love Nina, and she is a leader. Um, So now we got new information as to just how desperate they are to take her down. So take a look at this. This is from The Lever, David Schroeder's new outlet. Oil mogul bankrolls attempt to buy Democratic primary. To crush Nina Turner, oil mogul taps strategic petroleum reserve of cash for Chantel Brown. Wow. So here we go again. The big money flowing in for her. A super PAC bankrolled by a fossil fuel magnate is launching last-minute ads to try to crush the congressional candidacy of a leading proponent of a Green New Deal as scientists warn that oil and gas emissions are making the planet unlivable. If successful, the gambit would deliver an intimidating message from the fossil fuel industry to other Democratic candidates, pressing the government to address the climate crisis. One month after Samson Energy mogul Stacey Schusterman poured $2 million into DMFI PAC, the group purchased TV ads starting Monday to boost Representative Chantel Brown in her primary campaign rematch against former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner in a newly redrawn Cleveland congressional district. The primary election date is May 3rd. Last year, DMFI PAC spent $1.9 million attacking Turner and promoting Brown 
helping the latter win the seat in a special election. The group also spent $1.4 million attacking Sanders during his 2020 campaign. Turner, who co-chaired Senator Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign, has been campaigning for a Green New Deal and pressing the Biden administration to ban fracking. Brown has declined to co-sponsor some of House Democrats' most high-profile climate legislation, including the Climate Emergency Act, even after the United Nations scientists' recent dire warning about the crisis. Let's go to the next, next slide here. Schusterman's donations to DMFI PAC accounted for nearly 70% of the $2.9 million in funding that the organization raised in the first quarter this year between January and March. Overall, since 2019, she has donated $3.4 million to the Super PAC, which publicly bills itself as a pro-Israel advocacy organization. DMFI PAC's president, Mark Melman, runs the Melman Group, a polling firm whose website says its clients have included corporate health care interests like health insurers, Aetna and Blue Cross Blue Shield, drug industry lobbying group, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, or Pharma, and hospital lobby, American Hospital Association. The race has also drawn pro-Brown spending from a billionaire whose fortune came from the cryptocurrency industry, which has become a significant driver of carbon emissions. As Lever recently reported, Brown has additionally received support from the Congressional Progressive Caucus PAC, despite her decision to join the new corporate the, the corporate New Democrat Coalition's caucus, too. In February, Brown spoke at a third anniversary event for the DMFI PAC. So there's so much stuff in here. So, again, this group is just a money laundering operation for the oil industry, for big pharma, for the for-profit health insurance industry, for for-profit health care industry. So this is all of the big, powerful corporations and billionaires and players rushing in at the last minute again to try to crush Nina Turner. Now, I will say, there's a reason why they're doing this. You want to know why? Because they're scared Chantel Brown might actually lose. Look, the last time around, keep it real, it took all the king's horses and all the king's men to get Chantel Brown past that finish line. There, there was a time when Nina was leading by like 40 points or something crazy, but all the money in the world came in, and they ran these smear ads against Nina Turner where they were highlighting her comment of, like, you know, voting for Biden is like eating half a bowl of shit. Whereas, you know, voting for Trump would be like eating a whole bowl of shit. It was something to that effect. I don't remember the specifics of it, but the idea was she linked the idea of eating shit to voting for Biden, and they used that against her, and Democratic partisanship sort of won the day, and then Chantel Brown won. Now, understand something. That election, the election where Trump was running, and so you had a huge Democratic turnout. And so in that huge Democratic turnout, you had plenty of the more moderate Democrats vote. Who is more fired up, generally speaking, the base or the so-called moderates? It's the base. So who's more likely to vote in an off-year election? It's the base. The base is more likely to vote. So that is a little bit more of an advantage this time around to Nina Turner. They also redrew the district. The district is now viewed as more favorable to Nina Turner. And the reason why they're doing this, the reason why they're dumping so much money in is because they probably have some internal numbers that are like, this is not a foregone conclusion for Chantel Brown winning. It's not. So they might be scared of Nina Turner actually winning. Guys, Biden's approval rating right now is 33%. The Democratic Party brand is at a historic low. So this is a district that's very Democratic. They're not going to vote for a Republican. So if the only change option you're giving them is like, look, you went with the milk toast so-called centrist Democrat last time, well, changes on the ballot, you can go for Nina Turner this time. So there are a couple things that are working in Nina Turner's favor this time around. 
And I think they're doing this out of desperation because they're afraid she might actually win. So that's where we are now. But look at how dirty the political game is. It's so dirty. And this, again, last time, what happened? There were pro-Trump billionaires who came in who tried to get Chantel Brown past the finish line. The DMFI pack, like I said, they represent all these different corporations, and their other thing is, like, we're massively pro-Israel. So why else would a pro-Israel pack back Chantel Brown? Well, I told you guys recently, Chantel Brown is one of, like, 18 Democrats who just came out of the woodworks to say, we don't want another deal with Iran. So you have the Iran nuclear agreement under Obama and Biden as his VP, right? And then Trump acts that. Biden hasn't brought it back yet, but they're negotiating, like, a new deal or something. She's like, I don't, we don't even want a new deal. We don't want a new deal. That is, you know, the Israeli rights position. So look at who she's representing. She's representing billionaires. She's representing corporations. She's representing the status quo. There's never been a more clear race where, you know, one candidate is just eons better than the other candidate. And that's what Nina Turner represents. Uh, Look, she needs help. I'm sure she needs help, guys. Whatever you can do. If, if you happen to live near the area, go help her. Go help her on her campaign. If you want to donate 5 bucks or 10 bucks, go donate on her website. She can use the help. And at any time, this is why I, you know, I rail so much against the uh, a nihilistic attitude when it comes to politics. I get every now and then feeling like, fuck, is there really hope? Like, you know, we're not really seeing many tangible gains. But whenever we have a real option on the table to get tangible change, we, ha- change, we have to all be in there. We have to all be all in. We have to all fight for it with every fiber, every fiber of our being. Why can't I talk today? Nina Turner truly believes in Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, and all these things. And she just got backstabbed by the so-called Congressional Progressive Caucus. And my theory as to why Pramila Jayapal did that, and she is to blame, let's, let's be clear about that, is because I think Pramila Jayapal is trying to become the next Speaker of the House. And she thinks, i got to play the game to some extent. i got to appease Pelosi to some extent. So by doing this, she thinks, well, you know, I'll get the nice little pat on the head from the Democratic establishment and the leadership, and then maybe I'm more likely to get picked to be Speaker. My message to Pranilla Paul is she's never going to pick you to be Speaker, ever. The next Speaker of the House will be Hakeem Jeffries. You're not going to get picked. You're not going to get picked. Because if you're even 2% to the left of Nancy Pelosi, she despises you. She despises you. People can disagree with Pelosi to her right, and she will still be kind to them and, and uh, work with them and, and let them climb the ladder of success within the Democratic Party. If you're to her left, they hate you. They blame you for every single loss. In 2018, every Democrat who ran on Medicare for All, even in purple districts, won. They didn't say, oh, look, the left knows what they're doing. They attacked the left. Who are they blaming now for Biden's low approval ratings? The left. They're talking about defund the police brought us to this point. Defund the police. Biden is funding the police more, and his approval rating is 33%. Biden, the reason why you guys aren't popular is because you're not delivering on material policy. And what did Pramila Jayapal do? Basically guarantee she's not going to deliver on material policy because she's supporting somebody who's just a poser. Chantel Brown doesn't give a fuck about a $15 minimum wage. She doesn't care about Medicare for all. Now, Nina Turner does, but Pramila doesn't care because she'd rather sell out Nina Turner, sell out the progressive movement to try to climb that ladder of success and eventually become speaker. It is pathetic. It's pathetic. And they have the nerve. The day after this happened, 
with Chantel Brown being boosted by an oil oligarch? Uh, Pramila Jayapal is on Twitter talking about, climate change is an existential crisis. Here are the things we need to do to move forward to try to find solutions. And she listed some policies. It's like, you absolute virtue signaling poser hack. Here you have an option to get somebody in Congress who actually is right on the policies and will fight for it, and you're putting your middle finger up in her face, and you're picking the total corrupt sellout. And so now, when some good legislation gets shot down by the likes of Chantel Brown and, and her new Democrat coalition or the Blue Dog Coalition, you're going to be like, oh, gosh, why were we able to get this done? I thought we'd be able to get this done. You're undermining yourself, which is why I understand why people might look at Pramila Jayapal and others in the so-called Congressional Progressive Caucus and go, progressive my ass cheeks. You guys don't really care about this stuff. You're not principled. How can it be you have a situation where Chantel Brown is both in a new Democrat coalition and on the Congressional Progressive Caucus? That makes no sense. Do you have no litmus test for it? You want to let Donald Trump into the Congressional Progressive Caucus? The answer is they don't have any policy litmus test at all. So, you know, people are just liars. It, it, is, it is a logical contradiction to say I am both in the new, I'm a new Democrat and I'm a progressive. Because the new Democrats are defined as being non-progressive Democrats. I can't. I can't. God damn it. Guys, do whatever you can to get Nina Turner across that finish line. We need her voice in there. I told you guys the biggest mistake that was made with Justice Democrats was we vetted candidates based on, you know, do you believe in the right policies? And if they pass that test, all right, we're good to go, baby. What we didn't vet for, and we were wrong to do this, we didn't vet for leadership qualities. Because at the end of the day, if you believe the right things, great, I'm happy you believe the right things. Wonderful. But if you don't know how to go from point A to point B to point C to point D to try to get these things implemented, it doesn't matter that you believe the right things. Because then it's like, what are you going to do with that information? What are you going to do with these stances? Nothing. You're going to sit there in your infinite correctness and look at a brick wall in front of you. The answer is you need somebody who's right about everything, but also they have real leadership qualities. Because, you know, if you have... Uh, Nina Turner and Amy Valella, for example, in D.C. I think they are much more likely to hear, Nina Turner's got her, her ear to the streets. She's going to hear the progressive saying, hey, here's a potential strategy you can use. Why don't you block every single Biden bill unless he eliminates student loan debt? Why don't you give him a list of 15 executive orders and say, if you don't do these, you won't even be able to name a bridge? Why don't you actually throw your weight around? Why don't you welcome the fight with the media and with the Republicans and with the corporate Democrats? Stand up for the American people. Be clear that you are fighting for the American people. Nina Turner is, there's actually a chance Nina Turner would do a strategy like that. There's no chance that the current makeup that they would do that. They don't, because they never do that. So, go Nina. Um, But all of the forces of evil are consolidating to try to take her down. And I don't want that to happen. All right, guys. So I got some good news for you. Some good news. Um, We're seeing a giant number of gains when it comes to unions. It really is the one thing that's giving, um, you know, a lot of people in the movement hope. And uh, I love that. I love that. It's a spark that's turning into a wildfire. So first I want to show you, here's the situation on the ground with Verizon. And this is a great video from More Perfect Union where they talk to Verizon workers and they tell you what their experience is and they tell you what they're trying to do. So take a look at that, and then I'll give you the update on the story. Right, man, last money, 
rising me up four and a half billion dollars in profit, but they're taking up to forty percent in hard earned commission checks from their frontline employees. And this year our our raises were essentially pay cuts. They were almost meaningless compared to the uh, cost of living increase. You can't schedule family events, doctors' appointments or any kind of stable living. Uh, it's all focused around the chaotic nature of rising schedule. unaware that we were organizing this union. We caught them totally off guard when we went public with the union. I CC'd them on the email to, uh, to Hans uh, just to, to let them know that we were organizing. So immediately, the day after, I sent an email to Hans Beckberg, uh, the CEO of Verizon. Um, they flew out uh, a union buster the next day. I've been told by management that I should be grateful for what I have, and I should be grateful for the pay I have, because it's a lot better than uh, what other people are getting. I think the team is doing a great job, and, and as I said, I mean, you see it in the numbers right now. Even if you compare to 2019, we're up on every metric. I see my coworkers struggle to pay rent. I see my coworkers uh, living at work more than they live at their homes. I see my coworkers struggling to support their families, and it makes me sick to my stomach to think that the people that aren't living at Verizon are thriving and buying fancy cars and able to have families, able to go to school. Verizon is systematically sort of uh, taking all of our support in the stores. When I first started nine years ago, uh, we had a ton of support in our store. We had, you know, three assistant managers. We had operations specialists in each store. Uh, we had a GM for each store. And over the years, Verizon has, you know, laid off the operations people. Verizon's laid off our experienced reps who used to greet our customers and make our, our store flow better. And they just handed out those responsibilities to, to those that were left, and they didn't hand out their pay. Verizon just kept that to themselves. They can move us around from one location to another location without us really having a say to do or choose. We just want more of a say in our own livelihood, uh, better work-life balance. I experienced uh, being cornered, being isolated, a threat, um, threats in the sense of a threat with a smile, unspoken rules, um, passive aggression. They do a year, well, almost more than yearly uh, campaign of just anti-union training. You know, what to do if somebody approaches you with a card to, to, to sign for union? This union card may be legally binding. You know, don't, don't trust anything that the CWA says, basically. It's pretty easy to tell when someone's being manipulative, but they came in to use my values, my traumas, and my life against me to change my mind because they didn't want me to make a union. They didn't want me to support something that could help me. They were convincing me that what I thought was right was not right. The Starbucks workers right now are such a huge inspiration because it's one of the biggest companies. Like, everybody goes to Starbucks, everybody knows where Starbucks is. They are similar, similarly situated to us. There are a lot of small stores. We're not, we're not organizing, you know, a thousand people in a warehouse. We're organizing, you know, ten people two stores at a time, pretty much. If we can get more, more of us together, joined together, uh, we can make a lot more changes. It's, it's time to stand up. Uh, it's time to uh, talk to your coworkers. The more stores that stand up and, and join us and have a voice with us, the more power we'll have at the bargaining table to get what we truly deserve. So there you go. That's beautiful. Now the update is, let's throw this up on screen here. Andrew Perez says, Verizon workers in two Washington state stores just won a sweeping victory despite an aggressive union-busting campaign by the company. Uh, and then they have an article in Lever News about it, and then you can see Verizon Union says, we won 11 to 1. The Everett and Linwood stores are now unionized. Uh, so unionized with CWA. So um, look, snowball effect, baby. 
started with Starbucks. Um, the last four Starbucks union elections, not only did they win, they won unanimously. Starbucks is desperate. They got rid of the old CEO and brought back in Howard Schultz, who's now doing an aggressive union-busting campaign. But everything I've seen so far is that it's backfiring. It's backfiring. The tactics are way too heavy-handed. Um, literally talks about an outside organization is trying to take our workers, and this is like an assault on companies. They're not buying it. And one of the issues, in terms of Starbucks, one of the issues is, Crystal made this point, is, so like a lot of the people who work at Starbucks were Bernie people, and a lot of the people who work at Starbucks are from sort of like almost upper middle class backgrounds, and they're, they've been like educated on union stuff to a, a pretty high degree, and so they could see through everything that's happening. And also, the way, the way the job market is right now, people can, you know, if for whatever reason something takes a turn for the worse, they can find another job. And so they're willing to risk things, and they're willing to stand in solidarity, and they're willing to fight back. And look, snowball effect, man. You have Starbucks unions are, are forming all over the place. You have the Amazon labor union that just won with Chris Smalls in Staten Island. Now, there is another Amazon labor union uh, vote coming up. It's, I believe, the warehouse across the street, and I think it's on April 25th. Now, don't be too discouraged if that one doesn't go the right way. Don't be too discouraged. That doesn't mean we're doomed to failure. There's been massive uh, number of successes recently. Um, I think there's been a 57% increase in union drives this year. The NLRB right now is not hostile. It was very hostile under Donald Trump. It is not hostile right now. It's actually one of the better arguments. This is the point that Crystal makes all the time. She ended up voting for Joe Biden, and she said her main issue, apart from the Supreme Court, was She's huge on, huge on unions, and the NLRB that's now in place as a result of Biden is just not hostile to unions anymore. They're just not hostile. Now, we can go after Biden specifically for he just virtue signals around unions and doesn't lift a finger to do anything. They let the PRO Act die like it was nothing. Um, so there's criticisms of Biden on the union front, but there's not nearly as many on the NLRB front. It's just way better than Trump's, and it's facilitating a lot of these unions around the country. So... Um, it's wonderful. It's great. It looks like the revolution is here in terms of unionization. Again, don't get discouraged by setbacks. There might be setbacks every now and then, but uh, we keep moving forward. And what people realized is, I think it was a matter of necessity. People looked around and realized, ain't nobody coming to save us. There's no Calvary. You know, Washington is, is useless to a large extent. The Democrats are pathetic. Republicans are actively hostile to unions. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they looked at the people in their workplaces and they were like, Let's try this thing. And so it's, it's all positive, man. It's all positive. And I wish all these unions nothing but the best, and I hope they keep winning victories. And uh, this, is, this is the new thing. This is the new thing. This is the, this is the hope that people have been waiting for ever since you know, Bernie's movement sort of fell apart. We wanted something. The left is tired of moral victories. We wanted something that was tangible and real. And here, now we have it. Now we have it, so let's keep building on it. All right, next. Credit to Case Study QB for getting this video from Fox News. This is really incredible. So Fox hosts had a conversation about a law that's being floated in California, which is a 32-hour work week, so like a four-day work week type situation. They get outraged at the idea of a four-day work week. Let's take a look. 
Democrats in California are trying to cancel hard work. Here's their idea. State reps are proposing a four-day work week for companies with more than 500 employees. That's right. They're proposing shortening your office work week from 40 hours to just 32 hours, but get this part. Your salary stays the same. So it's 32 hours of work for 40 hours of pay. And if you want to work more than 32 hours, you have to get paid time and a half for overtime. And remember, this is happening in the midst of an alarming labor shortage in America. Employers cannot find workers. There's somewhere around 10 million jobs unfilled in this country right now. Are they lazy? This generation judges. That's what it is. Or, or have they figured out life is short? We've been taught to work so hard. You waste your whole life working. You can be taking it easy and get overtime. Okay, let me tell you what's going to happen. If you're, in a country, if you're in a company with more than 500 employees, you have to work 32 hours instead of 40 hours. That means every, everybody else is going to say, I only want to work 32 hours or I'm going to quit my job, okay? And the problem then is that after 32 hours, they're going to say, oh, I only want to work 25 hours. This is the beginning of the end as far as I'm concerned, okay? Nobody wants to work anymore. Everybody's lazy. The pandemic's a mess. People are walking around in pajamas in the supermarket. <laughs> they go to church in their pajamas. I don't get it. That's all I have to say. Nobody <laughs> wants to work. The Everyone's lazy. workers are dressed better than these people. <laughs> Amazing. The thing that I love the most about Fox News is that they are very clearly elitist. They are super elitist while they try to posture like they're not. And, like, you know, they're, they're the populist. They're looking out for the average American. There's never been a more smug, condescending, elitist conversation than what you heard right there. So let's, let's break it down. 40 hours to 32 hours, that's the conversation that we're having, potentially moving to a four-day work week. And I like how when Geraldo points out your salary would remain the same, they're like, they scoff at that. They're apoplectic. Like, <laughs> Yeah, why, that, that's actually awesome. What's the problem? Now, by the way, I should point out, there's been a number of studies on this, and what they found in no uncertain terms is when you reduce the number of hours or you make it a five-day work week to a four-day work week, the productivity either stays the same or actually goes up. It goes up. So you're not, like, you know, wasting time lollygagging at the job anymore. You, you work fewer hours, so you're more fresh and ready to go, and then you're able to focus much better. So, yeah, the, one of the reasons why the pay would be the same is because the productivity is the same or even better in some circumstances. They've done pilot programs in a number of different places, and there were really positive results. Then they bring up, like, oh, and if you work more than 32 hours, you get time and a half. Again, that's something they don't like that idea. But, like, if you poll people on that, if you poll the country, what are they going to say? I would bet that working 32 hours would be certainly over 60% support, maybe 70 or more, but certainly over 60. Time and a half for more than 32 hours, that might even get, that might even get more support than the 32-hour thing. That might be 70, 80% support for that. These are things that are really popular, and these guys are, like, scoffing at it. Now, by the way, think about how much each one of those people at that table makes who we're talking about it. And you only saw a piece of the clip. You can go watch the whole thing on Case Study QB's Twitter timeline if you want. Um, they go on and everybody's, you know, everybody has similar commentary, but how much do each one of them make and how many hours do they work? You know, and we're talking about people, a lot of people in this country, uh, what is it? 
a little bit more than half of workers make $30,000 a year or less in this country. Like, it'd be great if they can make the same but work a little bit less. It's only fair. Really, they should be probably paid more. Um, then Piero brings up everybody else is only going to want to work 32 hours after seeing this. It, it, yeah, and that's good. Like, she, phrase, she frames that as if it's like, this is, she literally says, this is the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end of what? Endless exploitation? And endless overworking? Because that, that is what happens. I mean, in this country, we are severely overworked. The U.S. has a, you know, a puritanical work culture in many respects. And now, we're not the only country. There are other countries. I think in Japan, they work ridiculous hours as well, maybe even more than we work here. But this isn't the only way to do it, you know? Like, they still have, in some countries in Europe, they still have, like, everybody takes an hour or two off uh, for lunch every day. They still have a culture of, like, you need to have a better work-life balance. And really, ultimately, that is what we're talking about here. We're talking about creating a better work-life balance, having a little bit more leisure time along with your work while still getting paid the same. It's, it's, I, it's hard for me to conceptualize that anybody truly opposes that. But, I mean, what they want to do is just force people to work even if they're miserable. Now, that's, that's the other point, too, is that what was the number? I think it was, like, only 18% of people feel, quote, engaged when they're at work. And what that tells me is that's almost like a stand-in poll for, like, what percentage of you truly like your job, where when you're doing it, you are engaged and you are with it? 18%, man, that is super-duper-duper duper low. That's so low, it's ridiculous. And so don't you feel sympathy for those people? Like, doesn't that make you either want to pay them more or give them more time off or find a way where they can get more hobby time or find a way where they can have a job that makes them feel fulfilled. When I look at that, I think that's like a silent crisis we're dealing with in this country. And they don't care. They just want you to just go back to work and shut up and work as many hours as I say you should work. It's such like they are so biased to how we currently do it. They think like, well, the way we do it now is how we do it now, so that has to be the right answer. And it's like, no, there are a lot of things about the system that are stupid. By the way, the U.S. is one of the only developed countries that doesn't have paid vacation time by law. We're also one of the only developed countries that doesn't have paid maternity leave by law. When you look at it, it's astonishing when you look at the chart. I've showed you guys the chart a number of times, but like you have all these different countries that have like a mix of like you get X amount of paid sick days, X amount of paid vacation days, X amount of paid maternity leave. And you get, you see this chart and it's like people in some countries get up to like a month paid off by law every year. And here in the U.S., it's, we have no paid time off by law. So it's just we're so far behind in this very basic metric, and these guys don't know those facts. And even if they knew them, they wouldn't care because, again, their position is shut up, get back to work, get exploited, and uh, get over it. And then they literally say at the end, everybody's lazy. That's quite a thing to say. I mean, so what's the unemployment rate right now? I don't know the unemployment rate off the top of my head. But here, let's look it up. Unemployment rate in the U.S. 3.6% right now. Now, that is not the actual unemployment rate. They fudged the numbers. So let me type in the U6 unemployment rate right now. 7.1%. So that's more like the real unemployment rate. So you have about 7% of the country is unemployed. The rest are employed or doing something productive, right? We're talking like 90-ish percent of the country that's working. And you look at them and you say they're lazy. Now, 90% of the country is working. And only 18% of that 90% feel engaged at work. But they're still working. 
That is nowhere near lazy, Janine Piero. That is people, unfortunately, having to suck it up and go through the motions to pay the bills and look after their kids and all this stuff. And instead of acknowledging, like, the sacrifice that that is and the shitty situation they're in, it's just, like, finger-wagging and judgment and, like, everybody's lazy. No, they're not. And, by the way, even of the people who are unemployed, I don't agree that all of them are just lazy. I don't agree with that. It's not lazy. Like, if you don't – if you're working a job and you don't love it and you're trying to find a job that you love and you're currently unemployed, does that mean you're lazy? No, that means you're intelligent. That means you're rational. You're trying to find a better life situation and make it work. Like the contempt they have. And I got to be honest with you guys. Maybe I'm weakening my argument here, but I don't care. I'll be honest. With you. I got to take it a step further. Even people who are fully demotivated and they think the entire system is bullshit and they sort of checked out. I don't blame those people. <laughs> like I look at the anti-work people and I'm like, I sort of see where you're coming from. You know, that's not to say I don't have policy disagreements with them because I do. But like I can understand where that comes from. You know, before I do what I do now, I was a car salesman, and I was miserable. And so I understand, I sympathize with anybody who's in a situation like that or a different job where they feel like that, because it's like, yeah, it sucks. Oftentimes it sucks. I I really hope people could work fewer hours, get paid the same or more, or find a new job that they don't despise. That's what I want. There's There's none, there's no humanity in her reaction and in their reaction. It's just like moral outrage over nothing. Moral outrage when the real outrage should be at the fact we work as many hours as we currently do. That's what I'm really outraged about, that people work hours that are far too long for pay that's nowhere near good enough, and they don't have the paid sick days and the paid vacation days and the paid maternity leave and paternity leave and all that stuff. That's what I'm outraged about, that the economy is so rigged and broken that basically 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And by the way, that poll was first. It was 78, I think, and that was pre-pandemic that we were at that point. That's what it pisses me off. What pisses me off is, what were those numbers? Um, billionaires make trillions during pandemic. Let's see. What was the number? Billionaires made, this is from January 26, 2021. Oh, wait, no, hold on. I got a newer one. I got a newer one. Uh, January 16th, 2022, billionaires added $5 trillion to their fortunes during the pandemic. And this is, uh, CNN is reporting on it. Billionaires added $5 trillion. That's what pisses me off. And the report, by the way, was uh, compiled by Forbes, and it was in Oxfam. That's what pisses me off, is that you have incredible income and wealth inequality, and basically the plebs are forced to shut up and go to work and don't complain. And we get the tiniest measures to ameliorate the harm and to create a better system, and they're mad about it. I think we should have a four-day work week nationwide. I do. And I think you should get paid the same or more, and the studies bear out they'll be equally as productive or even a little more productive. I think it's a wonderful idea, and I don't know why we didn't already do it. Actually, I do know why we didn't already do it in the entire country, because we're a corporatocracy, and the corporations... Do not want that to happen, but hopefully we can get, you know, a cultural shift in how we think about it, and hopefully, hey, maybe some corporations will realize they're more productive and they only work four days, and so then they'll go down that path. We shall see, but, you know, I doubt it. All right, next. So Mitch McConnell took a cheap shot 
at Bernie Sanders here. Um, he was at a Chamber of Commerce event, which, of course, I mean, that's like, of course Mitch McConnell is there. Mitch McConnell probably sleeps at the Chamber of Commerce. He is one of the most corrupt uh, members of the Senate. So let's take a look at what he said, and then we'll break it down. You know, think about a football field, and the American public is given a closely divided Congress. I think the message is, see what you can accomplish between the 40-yard lines, things you can actually agree on that are worth doing, maybe not earth-shaking, but worth doing. But, but you shouldn't be able to run the ball all the way in the end zone on the other side when, you, when it's pretty close. They looked at a 50-50 Senate, a couple of seat majority in the House, and declared they had a mandate for Bernie Sanders' vision of America. I don't think so. And that's why they've sold out, and I think that's why they're unpopular. The reason why Democrats have stalled out and are unpopular is because of Bernie Sanders' agenda. We know, as a matter of fact, that is not true. First of all, Bernie Sanders routinely ranks as the most popular politician in America, and it's not even close. And I think Mitch McConnell ranks towards the bottom of that list, by the way. So there's that fact, but I have more facts for you. So take a look at this, this um, chart with some polling data on it. I've showed you guys this before. Now, granted, this is old. This is from 2016. But since then, the numbers, if anything, have moved more in, uh, in a more favorable direction for Bernie's ideas. But look at this. Americans are intrigued by a political revolution. Quote, in the next decade, a political revolution might be necessary to redistribute money from the wealthiest Americans to the middle class. Strongly or somewhat agree, overall, 54% of the country. Independents, 51% agree. People who didn't vote in 2012, 58% agree. Tea Party supporters, even 55% of Tea Party supporters believe in redistribution of wealth from the rich to the middle class. And then the only group that's against it is seniors. Let me show you the next chart. Much of Bernie Sanders' agenda polls well. Should we raise taxes on the wealthy? 73% strongly or somewhat support. Raise taxes on big corporations? 66% strongly or somewhat support. Single-payer health care, 55% strongly or somewhat support. Free college, 59% strongly or somewhat support. Now, again, this poll is old. It's from 2016. But I will say the reason why I show you it is because it's one of the only ones I've ever seen that does the amalgamation of, like, here are, like, a bunch of his key ideas, and so what do you think about them? But if you look at new polling and you take the individual issues, you'll see – They've either stayed roughly the same or, in some instances, the support has gone up. I mean, here's just one example. There's one left-wing idea. This wasn't part of Bernie's platform, but the idea of UBI, there was a time in the middle of the pandemic when that pulled over 50%. So it, people are ready for this. People are ready for this. So the idea, Mitch, that the real problem with the Democrats is Bernie Sanders' agenda. No, the problem with the Democrats is they didn't do Bernie Sanders' agenda. If they did Bernie Sanders' agenda... Biden would have poll numbers like FDR did. And I don't know if you know this, but FDR won the presidency four times. There was a time when, like, Democrats controlled 80% of Congress because FDR was so damn popular. That's what happens when you do the New Deal. That's what happens when you give people a taste of social democracy. That's what happens when the government looks out for the material well-being of the population. So he gets it exactly backwards. Democrats are unpopular because of Bernie's agenda. They're not doing any of Bernie's agenda. It can't be why they're unpopular. They're not doing any of Bernie's agenda. 
When was Joe Biden his most popular? He had an approval rating of like 52% or 54%, something in that ballpark. It was when he cut $1,400 checks to everybody. That's when he was his most popular. So that is case in point that the more you go in the direction of Bernie's ideas, the more popular you become. So he's just, he couldn't be more wrong. Now, the other thing that annoys me is what he says at the beginning. He basically says, when Congress is split as it is right now, like you have to compromise. And the American people want that compromise. So in other words, the argument is Democrats do not have a mandate. They did not have a mandate and they do not have a mandate to do their agenda. Now, notice something. Whenever a Republican wins, McConnell says, we have a mandate. Like we have a mandate to do our ideas. You can get out of the way. When a Democrat wins, you don't have a mandate. You need to compromise. Well, why doesn't it work the same way with both parties? Why wouldn't you say when, a, when Republicans win, we're going to compromise because that's what we do. We compromise because it's split. Congress is split. Even though we won, it's still split. So let's compromise. He doesn't do that. It, it, McConnell is the clearest example of somebody who's all about just will to power because it's not about ideological consistency. It's not about having a standard and upholding it as objectively as possible. He just flips on a dime. I mean, you know, whenever Republicans are in power, he's like, we got to get rid of, uh, you know, the filibuster, for example. They got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court appointments under McConnell. And then when the Democrats are in power, they're like, shit, we should have the filibuster option. We need to be able to block the, the Democrats from putting these people on the court. Like, this is who this guy is. There's no standards. There's no criteria that he upholds. I mean, this is the guy who blocked what did he do? He blocked uh, Merrick Garland for like a whole year, like an entire year. He blocked Merrick Garland. It, it, was, it broke the record for the amount of time that they didn't even have a hearing on him. And then he was asked, well, what happens in the final year of Trump's presidency if he gets to appoint somebody? What did McConnell say? Oh, we're going we're gonna to appoint him. Wait, you've made up a fake rule that in the last year you don't get to appoint him, and now you're saying in the last year for Trump, yeah, I'll appoint him. He doesn't care about the hypocrisy. He's just like... hypocrisy is irrelevant. I care about winning. I mean, this is a guy, he wants to talk about we're split and we should compromise. This is the guy who broke the filibuster record against Obama. He broke the filibuster record against Obama. And remember, Obama is a guy, by his own description, he says, if I was around in the 1980s, I'd be a moderate Republican. And he broke the filibuster record against that guy. A guy who cut small business taxes, that's supposed to be a conservative idea. A guy who did Obamacare, which is an idea that originally came from the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank. This is who Mitch McConnell is. But needlessly, pot-shot at Bernie, savaging Bernie. Look, I, I genuinely don't know. I'll ask you guys. Do you think McConnell knows Bernie's ideas are popular, and so he says this just as a political ploy to try to get the Democrats to never go down that path? Or... Is he just in that conventional wisdom DC bubble and he's so brainwashed that he genuinely thinks, no, Bernie's ideas are unpopular. I tend to think it's the latter. I do. I tend to think it's the latter because when you're in DC and every voice in your ear is like ruthlessly mocking the idea of universal health care or free college, you start to think, well, yeah, everybody believes this. Like everybody, the American people are on the same page as me. But they're not. It's not even close. So... And, of course, Democrats buy into what – that's the crazy thing. What Mitch McConnell just said here is dead wrong. It is factually untrue. And I guarantee you this is the majority opinion among establishment Democrats, among corporate Democrats. They agree with McConnell. They think, oh, no, Biden went too far left and he was too ambitious. 
That's the problem. Biden should have, should be more moderate. He should be more like the Republicans. Then we'd be in a much better situation. Hell world, man. It's hell world we live in. All right, next. So we have a Biden pollster weighing in on the current state of the upcoming race. And um, he said something interesting. So take a look. This is in Mediaite. Biden pollster says only Biden can beat Trump in 2024, despite worst political environment in 30 years. It's from Zachary Lehman. He says, even at his lowest approval rating, he still beats Donald Trump, he said. The latest poll from Quinnipiac University found respondents giving Biden just a 33% approval rating. Among Hispanic voters, his numbers are cratering even more with only 26% approving of his job performance. Polling on Trump versus Biden in 2024 is mixed, but Biden is far from leading Trump in all of them. So a Democratic strategist said he's leading Trump in all of them. That's not true. A Harvard-Caps-Harris poll last month, for instance, found Trump leading Biden by six points in a hypothetical head-to-head matchup. There were also 12% of respondents who said they'd be undecided if faced with the same choice uh, as 2020. 12%, that's a huge number. Uh, Anzalone, that's the Democratic strategist. Uh, Faith in the 79-year-old Biden came with the acknowledgement that right now is a pretty sour time for Democrats as the country deals with national crises like record inflation and continuing supply chain issues. Quote, no one's going to sit there as a Democrat consultant and try to bullshit you that this is anything but a really sour environment for Democrats, Anzalone said, later adding that Republicans are better at branding than Democrats. Quote, we don't do a good job of branding, but goddamn, man, you know, critical race theory, which literally just, which literally just one day popped up in the American lexicon and it's not taught in any public school in America. Now it becomes an issue. They're really good at branding, he said. This is not a branding issue. Oh, my God. These Democratic consultants are overpaid hacks, and they don't know anything. This isn't a branding issue. It's a you're not doing shit to improve people's lives issue. Look, I do have my own thoughts on the whole, you know, cancel culture and wokeness thing. I do think that it hurts Democrats to some extent. But I also have it in perspective and understand the bigger problem is you didn't eliminate student loan debt. You didn't legalize marijuana. You didn't do the $15 minimum wage. You didn't pass the PRO Act. You didn't get Build Back Better, which had elder care, lower prescription drug prices, universal pre-K, expanded child tax credit. If you did even two of those things I just listed, your approval rating would not be 33%, Joe Biden. Your approval rating would be significantly higher. He's polling, he's polling so low, it's in like bottom of Trump territory. It's also in like nearing George W. Bush when he left office territory. Bush had like 26% or 28% or something like that on his way out. After the multiple wars and the stock market crash and the high unemployment, Biden's flirting with those sorts of numbers. And this idiot is like, man, we really didn't brand properly. You can brand however you want to brand. It's not going to land if you're not actually doing shit that helps people. Everything's a game to them. Everything's a game to them. And even the idea, look, I do think of the options that are typically on the table, Biden actually is the best hope, which says not anything about how good Biden is. It says how bad the bench is. Because if we're talking about your choices are like 
Kamala or Mayor Pete, yeah, I do think Biden probably has the best chance of those three to win the election. But I also don't think he has a great chance of winning the election. I think Trump is a little bit of a favorite at this point, which is astonishing. A guy who cannot shut up about an, an election saying it was stolen when it wasn't stolen and all the evidence says it wasn't stolen. It's an issue only 15% of even Republicans want him to keep talking about. And he can't shut up about that. And he's getting banned from doing podcasts. And he's still beating you. How sad are you? How sad are you? These people are a joke. The fact of the matter is they don't care about, I want to help working people. I want to fix the country. I have a vision. They, they have no vision, none at all. Everything is just, let me be ever so slightly less bad than Republicans. And that ain't going to work. It's not working. And if it's Trump versus Biden, again, they're just going to run the same Trump's really bad playbook. And it's like, well, look, that, that was a more convincing argument when we didn't have four years of Biden under our belt and we saw him sit on his ass all day. It's amazing. Honestly, the best hope for the Democrats would be some, some senator or congressman who comes up out of nowhere and uh, captures the imagination of the nation and ends up winning. Sort of like an Obama situation, but hopefully with somebody who has way better politics than Obama. If Raphael Warnock or John Ossoff tries to do it and they capture the imagination and they beat all the the scumbags and clowns and grifters and narcissists like Mayor Pete and Kamala Harris, then that would be the best case scenario. But it's, it's grim, man. It is super grim. What we're seeing now is like, it's, it's like watching the Titanic hit the iceberg in slow motion. It's like right now the Titanic is 500 yards away from the iceberg and they have time to turn and they're just not turning. And everybody's going, there's an iceberg right there, bro. Turn the wheel, dog. Turn the wheel. And the Democrats are steering the ship, and they're like, man, there's an iceberg. Somebody should do some shit about that. The wheel's right there. Turn the wheel. There's an iceberg right there. I I know there's an iceberg. Turn the wheel. Abolish student loan debt. Do something. Do something that you can through executive order. Just get it done. And the, the response is, how about I do nothing? And then we get wiped out, and then we'll blame the left. Uh, I can't, guys. can't deal with it. All right, final story of the day. So there's a story coming out of Florida that's making headlines. This really is something. Let's go ahead and take a look. This is in The Hill. They say Florida cites critical race theory references among reasons for rejecting 54 math textbooks. Jeez, that's a lot of textbooks. Florida's Department of Education announced on Friday that the state had rejected 54 math textbooks out of a total of 132 submitted, citing references to critical race theory among the reasons for the rejections. The state agency said 28 textbooks have been rejected because, quote, they incorporate prohibited topics or unsolicited strategies, including CRT. Among some of the state's other reasons for rejecting the mathematical materials, the department cited the inclusion of social-emotional learning and common core in the textbooks. SEL programming is intended to help students develop and manage healthy relationships and identities, can't allow that, manage their emotions and make responsible choices. 
among other aims, uh, among other aims, some conservative activists have claimed it's a vehicle for CRT, according to, according to the Washington Post, which is generally taught in institutions of higher education and centers the United States legacy of institutional racism in understanding past and current history. So, uh, 54 of 132 math textbooks are rejected. Okay, guys, this does look like a bit of a witch hunt, doesn't it? You're telling me 54 of the 132 math textbooks are unacceptable because I'd like to ask them what percentage of them or how many of them bring up critical race theory and then what percentage of it is the other thing, the inclusion of social-emotional learning, which apparently they're against. I really don't know what that is, but it, doesn't, it sounds relatively benign. And Common Core, that's like the federal standards. I wonder what percentage of them are because of those things and what percentage is because of CRT. Is there, are there like math questions that include bringing up the race of you know, Bobby and his friend Steve or something? I don't know. I don't know. But to ban 54 of 132, it does strike me like a little bit of a moral panic, doesn't it? It does strike me like a little bit of hysteria here. And it's funny because, you know, the argument against the, the what's derisively called the social justice warriors was always like, you guys are so insane and you're so authoritarian and you're so petty that not only will you ban speakers, you're going to ban books. And we're for freedom and people should be able to read whatever they want to read, so banning books is psycho. And now you have 54 of 132 math textbooks being rejected, not because of so-called social justice warriors, because of so-called anti-social justice warriors, because they're scared of CRT, critical race theory, which again, in most instance, instances, is taught in higher education. I don't know how much CRT is in like public schools at, at the whatever, grade school level, middle school level, even high school level. So it's a little bit of these people are mirroring the tactics of those they claim to disagree with. That, I don't know, man. I don't know. Now, you might say, well, hold on, man. Let's grant them this. Let's say it, only one of the books had a CRT problem or whatever, and the other... Um, the other books in there, really it was more the social-emotional learning thing, which for whatever reason they're against, and the Common Core thing. Maybe there are some legitimate reasons why these books were pulled. I don't necessarily agree with that, but let me grant that for the sake of the argument. The broader point here is people on the right who claim we're all about freedom are now saying maybe we should ban books we disagree with. Okay. It's gotten even more ridiculous. Take a look at this story because this is really something else. It's okay to be a unicorn comes under fire in Ohio school district. Author Jason Tharp said a school principal told him last week that he could no longer read his book at a local school event. It's okay to be a unicorn was banned at this school because there was one complaint from one parent. Now, why did they ban it? What's it's okay to be a unicorn about? By the way, they're not really like overt uh, LGBTQ themes in it. I think one article I read said there's a rainbow on the front of the book. And so perhaps this parent is super conservative and they interpreted that as you're pushing LGBTQ ideas on my, on my kid. That's one of the reasons. The other reason is it's possible that they just look at it's okay to be a unicorn and they, they interpret that as they're saying it's okay to be trans or gay or whatever and that's indoctrinating my kid. The name of the book isn't, I'm going to force you to be trans or gay. 
I, I want to make you something you're not. The whole point of the book is it's okay to be a unicorn. It's okay to just be whoever you are. I imagine disagreeing with that idea, disagreeing with that concept. No, it's not okay to be who you are. If you're not the thing that I want you to be and I want to force on you through whatever sort of social construct we've set up, well, then that's a problem. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. Look, I'm consistent on this, man. You guys know me. I am what one might call a libertarian leftist. So what that means is I'm live and let live on social issues, but on economic issues, I'm in favor of security. I'm in favor of regulation. I'm in favor of redistribution. So that means I'm opposed to what's called the authoritarian left. I don't agree with banning speakers from going to college campuses or banning people from social media, unless it's like a direct threat of violence type thing, in which case that's different. But I'm in favor of freedom. So I'll go after the authoritarian left if I think they're doing something wrong. This is now the right, while cloaking themselves in virtuousness and like we're just trying to protect kids, they're being authoritarian. This is authoritarianism. Ban the books I don't like because they teach ideas that I don't agree with. Well, hold on, hold on. What's the, to go back to the original story, what's the whole point of school? Like this is the thing. You want to say there's some ideas on the left that, that go too far and um, – Perhaps they're indoctrinating kids into a certain way of thinking. I agree with that. There were factual inaccuracies in the 1619 Project. The idea you base entire curriculums around that or teach that as the only view of American history, that's wrong. That's not a good idea. Don't do that. But by the same token, the right-wingers will say, you're teaching like fake history. Don't do that. And then they turn around and say, let's do this like patriotic curriculum thing where they only want to teach the good parts about America. And they want to teach American exceptionalism as if it's like an objective fact. Stop doing the competing indoctrination game. The whole idea of education is supposed to be, look, we're going to give you all of the facts and information, good and bad, and then you do critical thinking on your own and form your own conclusions and your own opinions. That's what it's supposed to be about. Now, in some classes, it is more black and white, no pun intended, of like, you know, math is math, science is science. The conclusions sort of are what they are. That should be taught in as dry a way as possible, where it's just like, this is how it goes. But in everything else, it should be, here's the good, here's the bad, here are all the facts, now you make your decision on it. So the competing indoctrination game we're talking about here is annoying as hell. And this is triggered right-wingers who are going authoritarian. Don't Because one parent complained about, a, it's okay to be a unicorn book, now we can't use that one. 50, what was it, 54, 52 math textbooks? Well, what, 54 math textbooks have to go because probably of the mildest critiques of all time with the way that they're worded and stuff. I mean, come on, man. This is baby shit. This is baby shit. It's amazing how you could take an issue that is really like a non-issue and just through the culture war sort of gin up impassionate, impassionate, that's not a word, passionate disagreement. You know what I mean? It's astonishing to watch this unfold in real time, to see one thing after the next thing after the next thing, and next thing you know, People are banning books and complaining over fucking unicorn shit. Come on. Anyway, there you have it. Wild story. Make of it whatever you will. All right, guys. I'm done, baby. I love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.